Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. Want to thank our witnesses as well. Uh, this is something we've been wanting to do for a long time, and that is have a hearing on the origins of COVID-19. And so both the select subcommittee on coronavirus Republicans as well as our ranking member on the oversight committee, Mr. Comer, are going to give opening statements. Then we have two witness panels that are going to be presenting evidence, and then we're going to have some Q&A sessions. Uh, we'll do at least one round, two rounds if necessary. And with that, I will, uh, I'll give my opening statement. Four million people around the globe have died from COVID-19. 600,000 of those deaths are here in America. With every one of those deaths, there's still families and loved ones who are also mourning. The entire world has been turned upside down. Our children have lost a year of their livelihoods. Millions of those children lost an irreplaceable year of in-classroom learning. Governments have borrowed trillions of dollars responding to this pandemic. So we have a simple, basic question. How did COVID-19 start? What was the origin of COVID-19? We've asked that question for more than a year and requested that the House majority hold hearings to investigate the origins of COVID-19. Perplexingly, Speaker Pelosi has refused to allow a single hearing, calling it a diversion. As the American people will hear today from our expert witnesses, this is far from a diversion. The evidence continues mounting that this was a man-made disaster that started in the Wuhan lab. If that is the case, then it might be considered dramatically worse than Chernobyl. Today's witnesses will lay out two specific facts. One, the Chinese government engaged in a series of lies followed by a massive cover-up from the very start of COVID. And number two, the weight of evidence strongly points to the virus having emerged from the Wuhan lab. Let me start with the lie. And you will hear more from ranking members McCall and Nunes about this. On January 2nd, 2020, Dr. Fauci and CDC Director Dr. Redfield picked up from the Chinese Communist Party the first official lie. The CCP claimed in each of, at that point, 27 reported cases that the illness had jumped from an animal to a human. Both doctors, Fauci and Redfield, knew that was likely not true. We now know with overwhelming certainty that was, in fact, a lie. A year and a half later, there is not a single case of the virus having jumped from an animal to a human. Yet the CCP claimed to know of 27 separate individual cases. The Chinese Communist Party was also covering up knowledge of human-to-human -human transmission. On January 7th, the CDC situational re report included, quote, Media has begun to report high demand of N95 respirators in China. Well, you don't need N95 respirators to protect against individual animal-to-human transmission. China knew the virus was spreading from humans to other humans. On January 4th of 2020, Dr. Redfield offered to send the CDC Epidemic, Intel uh, Epidemic Intelligence Service to Wuhan. Had China been opened and transparent with the world, the pandemic could have been stopped right then and there. Instead, weeks later, China put people from Wuhan on international flights, spreading the disease globally. 
Throughout January of 2020, there were 20,000 people from China who were entering the United States daily, exponentially worse than Chernobyl. On January 6th, Dr. Redfield spoke with China's equivalent of their CDC and reported to the U.S. National Security Advisor that his, quote, call was both troubling and bizarre. China was stonewalling, he went on to say. Gao was not forthcoming at all. This was Dr. Redfield back in January of 2020. Redfield was concerned by Gao's tone, which was different from his previous experiences with him. Gao sounded like a hostage. On January 10th, the United States beginning work on a vaccine. Let me pause there for a moment because it shows a dramatic dichotomy between our two nations. In the critical first days, China was engaging in a massive cover-up while allowing the virus to spread across the globe. And at the same time, the United States was beginning work on a life-saving vaccine. The story matters and is a display to the world of the two countries' characters, the morals and the values. By January 13th, Dr. Fauci concluded, quote, holy bleep, they haven't been telling us the truth. That was Dr. Fauci's quote in January of 2020. Why was China lying? Could it be the motive was to cover up a virus that had leaked from a lab conducting gain-of-function research on coronaviruses, meaning that manipulation in the lab had likely made the virus dramatically more dangerous to the world than a naturally occurring coronavirus? That might be a motive for a massive government cover-up. Our witnesses will discuss this further, but here is what we know today. One, no intermediate host, the animal that the bat would be expected to infect that would then transmit the virus to humans has been found after testing, by the way, hundreds of different species and thousands of specific animals still haven't found that animal. Two, there is no evidence it was ever in the human community before the pandemic began. And yet, as Dr. Quay will be discussing, it had perfected human to human spread from the very beginning. That is the hallmark of a lab-created virus. And number three, we know that the Wuhan lab was conducting potentially dangerous research on bat coronaviruses and their ability to cause pandemics, including included gain-of-function research. As Admiral Girard states, quote, it's just too much of a coincidence that a worldwide pandemic caused by a novel bat coronavirus that cannot be found in nature started just a few miles away from a secretive laboratory doing potentially dangerous research on bat coronaviruses. We also know the first cases of COVID in China occurred sometime between mid-October to mid-November of 2019. This is when we now know that according to the Wall Street Journal, three Wuhan lab workers sought hospital care for an unknown respiratory illness. COVID didn't start in late December in the wet markets. It started months earlier, and lab workers in the institute working on coronavirus were infected. And China began lying immediately and began buying up N95 respirators immediately. And they closed domestic travel, but continued sending 20,000 people a day to America. And now 600,000 Americans are dead and 4 million people worldwide. This is exponentially worse than Chernobyl. And yet, to this day, Speaker Pelosi has yet to have a single hearing on the origin of COVID-19. 
the very nature, the very name of our committee is the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus. And yet, not a single hearing on the origin of the coronavirus. Well, that changes today. The American people will learn a lot today about what we know. The willingness, the, the witnesses are respected, serious experts who have put time and research into learning more about the origins of COVID-19. But we should be having a bipartisan investigation that would include subpoena power to bring others in. NIH and Dr. Fauci should also testify about the history of NIH's involvement and gain of function. Speaker Pelosi should immediately take up the bill that passed unanimously out of the Senate that would declassify all intelligence related to the origins of COVID. Think about this. There is a bill that passed the Senate unanimously, all Republicans, all Democrats, to declassify some of the things we're trying to find out. Speaker Pelosi has yet to bring that up. We're calling on her to bring that up. It would pass this House overwhelmingly and get us more of those answers. So ultimately, today's hearing, we're going to be asking these questions, and we expect to get some answers, and we hope to continue pressing to get even more answers. With that, I'd like to yield to the ranking member of the Oversight Committee, Mr. Comer. Thank you, Ranking Member Scalise, for your diligence on behalf of the American people to get to the origins of COVID-19. It's essential to understand the origins of this virus in order to prevent it from happening again. Without a full and comprehensive investigation, we cannot adequately prepare for the next outbreak. The Chinese Communist Party spent the majority of the last year and a half misleading the world, spreading propaganda, and enabling this virus to run unchecked for far too long. The Chinese Communist Party intentionally concealed the severity of COVID-19 to stockpile medical supplies to the detriment of the global supply chain. The Chinese Communist Party led an effort to control and conceal the information regarding their true infection and death rates. But they did not act alone. The World Health Organization helped the Chinese Communist Party by supporting and spreading their lies and propaganda. The World Health Organization denied that human-to-human -human spread of COVID-19 could occur based solely on Chinese Communist Party propaganda in early January 2020. When it became clear that human-to-human -human transmission was in fact occurring, the World Health Organization delayed labeling the pandemic a public health emergency of international concern because the, Communist China, the Chinese Communist Party threatened to stop all international COVID-19 efforts if it made that determination. The World Health Organization failed to issue common sense restrictions on travel to and from China despite evidence the virus was transmitting when people traveled. The WHO, in an attempt to cover their tracks and perpetuate the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda, issued a one-sided report on the origins of the virus in April 2021. This report had no chance of being accurate because the Chinese Communist Party was given full veto power over inclusion of American scientists, and they vetoed the inclusion of three American scientists put forward by HHS. The Chinese Communist Party designed the mission's itinerary and refused to access the Chinese scientists' raw data, the two most important sources of information on the origins of the virus. At the behest of the Chinese Communist Party, the World Health Organization altered their mission to include far-fetched origin claims, like shipped frozen food. And the Chinese Communist Party was given full power to edit and alter the final report. How could we expect anything close to a full investigation and accurate report when the government seemingly responsible for the outbreak controls the entire investigation? In short, China lied, 
the World Health Organization complied and people died. Those responsible for the deaths of 600,000 Americans must be held accountable. And Congress must seek answers for grieving families who lost loved ones during the pandemic. A further concern has recently come to light that the Chinese Communist Party demanded that the NIH delete the early sequences of COVID-19 cases from their database. In order to best understand the origins of this pandemic, it's important to look at how the virus initially emerged in the human population. This information is, mostly, is most accurately found in the first infected patients. Without this data, it becomes increasingly hard to uncover the truth. This is yet another link in the long chain of Chinese Communist Party cover-up actions and raises important questions about whether there were additional sequences that the Chinese Communist Party failed to share with the world or deleted after COVID-19 began to spread. Despite repeated attempts by the Chinese Communist Party to cover up the origin of this virus, a significant amount of data has been collected and analyzed in the last year and a half. Evidence we will uncover during this forum. Evidence that this virus came from a lab-modified version of a bat coronavirus is continuing to grow. As we will hear from our witnesses today, every scientific test that distinguishes between the theories of the virus jumping from an animal to a human and the virus originating from a lab leak gives results that highly favor the lab origin theory. We have yet to see any hard data that supports this virus came directly from animal to human. I look forward to hearing more from our distinguished colleagues about their efforts to uncover the truth and look forward to hearing from our panel of experts. Their work is fundamental to preventing the next pandemic and we thank everyone for it. I yield back. Uh, thank you, Ranking Member Comer. Now to our uh, fellow colleagues on the select subcommittee for opening statements, Mr. Jordan. You want to yield to? All right, we'll go. Yeah, we'll go to our panel then. After the first panel, we'll come back to uh, our members of the select subcommittee. Uh, I know that the panelists that we're going to hear from next are colleagues who have been working on the front lines of various. Uh, portions of this this pandemic, but also looking into different avenues that we can at least get some information on regarding the origins. So with that, we'll start with ranking member of the Energy and Commerce Committee, Ms. McMorris-Rogers.
Thank you, Ms. Morris Rogers. Now the ranking member for the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Mr. Nunes. Well, thank you, Mr. Scalise. And Make sure your microphone is on, too. Shows it's on now. There we go. All right. I want to thank uh, Whip Scalise and Mr. Comer. I'm happy to be here today to discuss the work of Intelligence Committee Republicans to uncover the truth behind the origins of COVID-19. For nearly a decade, House Intelligence Committee Republicans have been investigating China's malign activities across the globe, from concerns over Huawei to China's Belt and Road Initiative to its theft of our intellectual property and increasingly aggressive activities in the South China Sea. We have actively worked to determine the nature and scope of nefarious Chinese activities. We have faced the China threat head on because we believe what is at stake here is nothing less than our future as a free society. I also want to recognize the efforts of our colleagues in this room. I commend all of you for your strong leadership on this front, both in the Select Committee and via the House Republicans China Task Force that was stood up last Congress and the roadmap for COVID-19 accountability released last week. The Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, and the People's Liberation Army represent an existential threat to freedom across the globe. Strong, dynamic, and fearless leadership is what is needed to combat a threat of this magnitude. Unfortunately, the Democrats possess none of these qualities, particularly when it comes to China. President Biden has failed to do anything meaningful to hold China accountable. Congressional Democrats seemingly have no interest in protecting our nation and people from this threat. And the media continues to serve as a propaganda mouthpiece for China, the Biden White House, and Democratic leadership, along with help from big tech. Consequently, last month, committee Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee released an interim report on COVID-19 and the Wuhan Institute of Biology Laboratory that report describes our efforts to understand how the COVID-19 virus originated. In brief, here is what we found. First, there is simply no substantive, substantive evidence supporting the theory that SARS-CoV-2 was a virus transferred from an animal to human, and recent scientific scholarship suggests that such a zoonotic transfer is unlikely. Chinese researchers have failed to find the original bat population or species from which the virus may have jumped, despite an intensive search and testing more than 80,000 animals. Second, there were multiple warnings about safety at the Wuhan lab beginning as far back as 2017. Health and science experts from U.S. Embassy in Beijing warned the lab's work to make bat coronaviruses infectious for humans coupled with the grave safety control concerns could result in the accidental unleashing of a SARS-like pandemic. Third, our report outlines how China engaged in highly sensitive gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab. As we all know by now, gain-of-function research can produce dangerous viral strains that could intentionally or unintentionally cause a pandemic. That NIAID, under the leadership of Dr. Fauci, funneled U.S. taxpayer dollars to the Wuhan lab for gain-of-function research. Fourth, the People's Liberation Army reportedly conducts secret scientific research in the Wuhan lab, and the head of the lab is a major general in the People's Liberation Army who is recognized as China's top bio-warfare expert. Given the Chinese military's presence at the lab, it is difficult to understand why the U.S. government permitted and funded collaborative research there. 
And finally, China has prevented a fulsome and credible investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Why would they do such a thing if the virus originated from an animal? China's interference, of course, is what allegedly led the Biden administration to insist that China cooperate or face isolation in the international community. This is, of course, a weak and ineffective position to take. Like most authoritarian nations, China does not respect weakness. Stronger steps are needed to ensure we can get to the bottom of this matter and have confidence in the result. Let's not forget the Biden administration only called on China to cooperate a week after House Intelligence Committee released our report and after the Republicans' efforts to investigate the origins of COVID-19 had begun to resonate with the American people. As with many other things, the Democrats are not interested in finding the truth. That's why they're not here today. And they are only interested in cynically getting ahead of the storyline. Remember my comment about the media acting like a propagandist mouthpiece for the Democratic Party. A year ago, the media labeled President Trump and Republicans as racist, xenophobes for suggesting the virus was not zoonotic, but was the result of a lab leak. That the possibility that this virus originated in a lab was dismissed as a conspiracy theory by the press. In fact, Facebook and other big tech banned and removed posts that claimed the virus may have come from a lab. Why? Well, because they feared that information would support statements made by President Trump and Republicans at the time. The fact that the Democrats and their allies in the media and big tech were more interested in hurling insults at their political opponents rather than fostering an open discourse about the origins of the virus that has killed over 3 million people worldwide. In contrast, I appreciate the work of not only this committee, but you can trust that the House Intelligence Committee Republicans will continue our investigation into China's malign activities. And with that, I yield back. Thank you again, Mr. Nunez, for that work and that presentation. Now, uh, not only the ranking member on the Committee on Foreign Affairs, but also the head of the House's China Task Force, um, Chairman Mike McCall. Thank you, Whip Scalise, Ranking Member Comer. As many of you know, I began investigating the origins of COVID-19 in April last year, both as a top Republican on the Foreign Affairs Committee and as the chair of the China Task Force in, encompassing 11 um, uh, committees of jurisdiction. We invited the Democrats to join us. Speaker Pelosi said it was a diversion. I released my initial report last September. In that report, we touched on the possibility that it could have come from the lab. After continuing to research this topic, I now feel comfortable concluding that it is more likely than not that it came from the lab. In fact, I would say there's credible evidence as a former federal prosecutor. Unfortunately, we may, we may never know for certain because the Chinese Communist Party went to great lengths to cover up this outbreak. They detained the doctors in order to silence them. They disappeared journalists. They destroyed lab samples. They hid the fact that there was clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. And they refused to allow a real investigation into the origins. And at the same time, the WHO, under Director General Tedros, failed to warn the world of the impending pandemic. Instead, he parroted the CCP's talking points and was really acting as a puppet of General Secretary Xi. As I've often said, this was the worst cover-up in human history. Now, more than one year later, at least four million people have lost their lives, including more than 600,000 Americans. Unfortunately, the Biden administration 
is refusing to take investigating the origins of this virus seriously. They are pushing for yet another WHO investigation, even after the last one was so tainted by the CCP that even Tedros has said more investigations needed to be done. But that's why we're here today, because the president and congressional Democrats are, are forcing us to do this work alone. As we continue this investigation, I believe it's time to completely dismiss the wet market as a source of the outbreak. We have a conf have confirmed case 10 days before the wet market cluster that had no connection to the market itself. In fact, I would say this is a diversion by the CCP and all roads point to the lab. And even as the CCP now has admitted after the fact that they don't believe the virus originated at the wet market. But as a former federal prosecutor, I can tell you the preponderance of the evidence that it came from the lab is very convincing. State Department cables from 2018 detail significant concerns about the safety protocols not being followed at the new campus of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We know that this was not the first instance of safety protocols being ignored at the Chinese labs. In 2004, SARS leaked from a similar lab in Beijing. We now know that at the same time of the State Department cables and for several years before, scientists at the WIV were conducting gain-of-function research at both the new and old facilities. This is genetic modification of the virus to make it more viral, to make it more transmittable, to make it more infectious in humans. Some of this research was conducted not only at BSL-4, but BSL-2 labs, even though that kind of research should be conducted at BSL-4. BSL-2 are, are far less secure. By the way, there's one very close to the wet market. In addition, in a city five times larger than the city of, of Houston, the first signs of the new illness were all clustered around the old WIV facility, the level two facility. Then on September 12th, 2019, the WIV suddenly took their virus database offline. You have to ask the question, why? Why did they take this offline? Removing the database would prevent hospitals in the city from comparing samples from sick patients to the lab's li library of viruses. If the CCP was attempting to cover up a leak of coronaviruses being studied at the WIV, this would remove the ability to link COVID-19 back to the WIV. According to a Harvard study in the following weeks, five of the six hospitals surrounding the old WIV saw the highest daily average of cars in their parking lot in two and a half years. This indicates people around the old WIV facility were suddenly sicker than usual, and they were visiting hospitals at a higher rate than usual. If an outbreak had begun around September from a leak, this is exactly what we would see. And new testimony now received by my committee reveals the Chinese military potentially took over this lab, not in January 2020 as reported, but earlier in 2019. The Chinese military were actually in the facility at the time of 2017. That signals to me as a prosecutor, the CCP was worried about something at the lab before the world knew, even knew, what COVID-19 was. 
why else would they put the Chinese military in charge? In October 2019, Wuhan hosted the 2019 World Military Games. These are similar to the Olympics, but with military personnel competing. More than 9,300 athletes from over 100 countries came to the city. And it should have been a massive public relations opportunity for the CCP, yet no fans or observers were allowed to attend. There were reports of roads being blocked with athletes describing Wuhan as a ghost town. If a virus had leaked from the lab in early September and there was an uptick in hospital visits around the old WIV, the CCP would likely be worried. This would potentially lead them, lead them back and lock down the city and ban fans from the game, which is exactly what happened. Most telling of all, dozens of these athletes have recently come forward saying they got sick while at the games with what would now be classified as COVID-like symptoms. The village where the athletes lived was less than eight miles from the old WIV and connected to downtown Wuhan by a new subway stop. I now believe this was actually one of the earliest COVID-19 super spreader events. At least four of these athletes were from countries who have now confirmed the virus was circulating within their borders in November and December of 2019. That would be Italy, Brazil, France, and Sweden. This would be the exact time frame that indicated entered their borders in late October, likely from the military game athletes. I've also discovered some very important new facts. They not only point to the Wuhan Institute being the likeliest point of origin, but they also establish a high likelihood that the virus was man-made as well. I believe we've found the answer to the question, quote, how did this virus from a cave 1,000 miles away get to the middle of a city of 11 million? It wasn't natural. It was a lab. Next month, the House Foreign Affairs Committee will release, the Republicans will release an updated origins report that will detail all of our new findings. So with that, Whip Scalise and Ranking Member Comer, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I appreciate that testimony as well as the work that the committee, uh, that the China Task Force is doing to get these facts out here. Someone else who has been working on this for over a year now, uh, our colleague, uh, Congressman Gallagher. Uh, thank you, Whip Scalise, uh, Ranking Member Comer, uh, for this opportunity. I can't think of a more important question facing the world today than how this pandemic started, uh, which makes, makes it all the more uh, tragic that we don't have the uh, willing participation of our Democratic colleagues. I don't see this as a Republican question or a Democrat question. This is a forensic question of how this actually started. That being said, I, I strongly support the establishment of an independent bipartisan expert commission. I've had some experience in the cyber domain leading such a commission, and I've seen the power of a hybrid commission of both legislators and outside experts to break through the noise and deliver serious uh, bipartisan recommendations. But even in the absence of such a congressionally mandated commission, I think there are a number of steps we can immediately take to better understand the origin of the virus so that we can prevent a similar crisis from happening again. I don't want to rehash a lot of the very compelling points my colleague made, so I'll try and add a little bit to the discussion. Four things stand out in my mind. The first and most obvious is, is what uh, Whip Scalise referenced, which is that we should declassify all intelligence products, reporting, and assessments related to COVID-19's origins, and in particular, 
those underpinning the IC assessments related to President Biden's May 26, 2021 directive on his COVID investigation, the January 2021 State Department disclosures made by the outgoing Trump administration, and the material used to inform the April 30th, 2020 DNI statement on COVID origins. That statement is openly available. It's worth revisiting where our entire intelligence community concurs with what they call the strong scientific consensus that this was not man-made or genetically modified. How How did that happen? I, would, I think we all have an interest in knowing. Number two, issue a subpoena to the EcoHealth Alliance for any and all data and files they have relating to their collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Number three, auditing the records of all federal agencies for a thorough accounting of any funding that may have gone to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, either directly through third parties such as NGOs over the past, uh, 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 directly or indirectly through parties uh, such as the EcoHealth Alliance over the past decade. Um, uh, Ranking Member McCall mentioned the Wuhan military games. For example, I've written a letter to the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs asking, have we interviewed the 284 Americans that went to those games? Were these Americans tested for antibodies, what did we learn from that from that process? And if we haven't started that process, it can still begin. It's not too late to get more information related to this. And then fourth and finally, continuing the State Department's arms control investigation into potential biological weapons convention violations uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. Regardless of the outcome of these investigations, and we should fo- follow the data wherever they leave, there are at least three broader lessons I believe we can already take away from this experience. In the interest of brevity, I won't go into all in detail. I'm happy to answer follow-on questions. But the first is the pervasive influence of what's called united front work. Um, perhaps the easiest way to understand the Chinese Communist Party's united front work is to think of it as, as inception. The CCP influences or co-ops foreign elites, oftentimes without their direct knowledge, to spread messages that align with the party's interests. And without speculating on their motivations, it's hard to escape noticing that many of the individuals who have been most critical of the lab leak hypothesis, Peter Daszak was mentioned uh, by ranking member McMorris-Rogers. It should be noted that Peter Daszak is a zoologist, not a virologist. Um, Anyone that signed that Lancet letter, at least... Uh, uh, five members of, of who signed that Lancet letter are now on the Lancet's investigation into the origin of the disease, if you can believe it. The chair also has profound conflicts of interest. They have direct and long-standing relationships with Chinese en- entities. The second is the need to enhance American biological defenses. The tragic deaths of over 600,000 Americans and the losses throughout our economy have signaled to our adversaries that biological warfare could be a highly effective mechanism to attack our homeland. And given the rapid advances in synthetic biology, we need to act quickly so our adversaries cannot weaponize biology against us. And third and finally, I believe it is long past time for us to completely decouple uh, our scientific collaboration with the People's Republic of China. Like many Americans, I was startled to discover that taxpayer resources made their way to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which we know from the January 2021 State Department fact sheet, engaged in classified research on behalf of the Chinese military. While scientific collaboration is an important part of our technological leadership, we have plenty of like-minded allies and partners that are not actively engaged in genocide, nor threatening their neighbors with invasion that we can work with. And unfortunately, given the direction of the CCP policy, Scientific collaboration is likely only to enhance the party's grip on power through new ways to surveil or control their population, or in the worst case, develop the ability to wipe out entire populations, depending on their, the whims of the party. 
Ranking Member Scalise, you started off by commenting that this is worse than Chernobyl. I agree with that. I've called this the CCP's Chernobyl. If you've seen the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, uh, there's a moment at the end when the lead scientist, Valery Lagosev, makes a comment. And he says, every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. And sooner or later, the debt is paid. Well, the debt incurred by the CCP's lies has cost us over 600,000 American lives and counting. And we owe it to these people and to their families to get to the truth. Thank you. I yield back. Well, Congressman Gallagher, I thank you for that work and for that presentation. Uh, before I go to the members of the select subcommittee for their opening statements, since it's been referenced twice now, I did want to ask unanimous consent to enter into the record Senate Bill 1348. Uh, this is the bill that would require the Director of National Intelligence to declassify information relating to the origin of COVID-19 and for other purposes. This bill passed the Senate unanimously, uh, still sitting in the House uh, without objection. This will be entered in the record. And now we'll go to Mr. Jordan for his opening statements. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Friday, January 31st, 2020, at 10.32 p.m., Dr. Fauci gets an email from Christian Anderson. Christian Anderson's a British researcher who's received numerous grants from NIH. Two really important sentences are in that email, two sentences that get Dr. Fauci's attention. The first is this. The unusual features of the virus make up a really small part of the genome, so one has to look really closely at all the sequences to see that some of the features look engineered. Again, this is January 31st, 2020. Second sentence, Eddie, Bob, Mike, and myself all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. Email arrives 1032 to Dr. Fauci on January 31st, 2020. Two hours later, two hours later at 1229 in the morning, Dr. Fauci sends an email to his top deputy, Mr. Hugh Oshenkloss. Guys, worked for Fauci for 15 years, part of his inner circle. Sends it, subject line says, important in all capital letters. The, he attaches a paper on gain-of-function research written by Dr. Barrick and Dr. Xi. Dr. Xi, of course, is the so-called bat lady, bat woman, the lady who does research in the Wuhan China lab. This email, Dr. Fauci says, again, to his top deputy, it is essential that we speak this a.m., Keep your cell phone on. Read this paper. You will have tasks to do today that must be done. Notice the intensity. Notice the focus. I mean, this is the house is on fire email here. Now, two hours after that, at 2.48 in the morning, Dr. Fauci's busy this morning, 12.29, that email he sent to Dr. Oshenklaas, his top deputy, two hours later at 2.48 in the morning, he sends another email, this one to Robert Cadlick. Assistant HHS Secretary, Trump appointee, not part of his inner circle, and he attaches a different article to this email, one that says the virus came from an animal that downplays any lab leak theory. Now, again, notice the tone of this one. Bob, this just came out today. Gives a balanced view, best Tony. I mean, totally different from the previous. This is one like, oh, if you get a chance, read this, gives a balanced view. So the tone is different, but also that sentence, gives a balanced view, it's not true either. That's just not accurate. This article downplays, as I said, the lab leak theory emphasizes evolutionary cause to the virus. What happens next? What happens next? Later that same morning, later that same morning at 11.47 a.m., Dr. Fauci's deputy gets back to him. 
I just want to read you this whole email. The paper you sent me, the one he sent him on that was written by the virologist from Wuhan, China, and Dr. Barrick. The paper you sent me says the experiments were performed before the gain-of-function pause, but have since been re reviewed and approved by NIH. Not sure what that means, since Emily, someone else who works for Dr. Fauci, is sure that no coronavirus work has gone through the P3 framework, which, of course, is the oversight body that's supposed to approve any grant dollars going for gain-of-function research. No coronavirus work has gone through the P3 framework. Final sentence, she will try to determine if we have any distant ties to this work abroad. She will try to determine if our fingerprints are on any of this. All these emails happen in 13 hours. So 13 hours after Dr. Fauci gets the initial email from Christian Anderson saying, looks like this virus is engineered, not consistent with evolutionary theory, Dr. Fauci knows some important facts. First, Dr. Fauci knows there's a lethal virus on the loose that started in Wuhan, China. Second, he knows the American taxpayers have funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China. Third, he knows that the research grant didn't go through the required oversight board. Fourth, he knows the virus, quote, looks engineered and, quote, not consistent with evolutionary theory. And finally, fifth, Dr. Fauci knows he may have ties to this work in China. His fingerprints, in fact, may be on this. So what does Dr. Fauci do next? After he says, oh, whatever, what does he do next? He organizes a conference call for later that same day. I mean, this is the busiest 24 hours I think I've ever seen. He organizes a conference call, 12 people on the call, Dr. Fauci and 11 virologists from around the world, virologists who've gotten millions of American tax dollars over the past several years. Now look at this list. Here's the list of people. There's only two Americans on the list, Tony Fauci and one other. Most of them are from around the world, as I said. I think the first thing you notice is who's not on the call. Who's not on the list? Is Dr. Cadlick on the list? The guy he sent the email to at three in the morning? Is Dr. Redfield the head of CDC? Dr. Girard, who's with us today, Assistant Secretary at HHS at the time? Dr. Burks, the lady who's soon to be COVID response coordinator? In fact, there's no one from the government on the call except Tony Fauci. Tony Fauci and 11 other individuals who got a bunch of American tax dollars over the years. What happened on the conference call? The short answer is we don't know. We don't know what they talked about. I mean, I, got a, I think we got a good idea. We don't know for sure. But we do know what happened four days later. Four days later, February 4th, 2020, Christian Anderson, the guy who started it all, who said the virus looks engineered, Christian Anderson said this four days later. The crack, the quote, the crackpot theories going around at the moment relate to this virus being somehow engineered. That is demonstrably false, close quote. What? In four days, this guy went from this looks engineered to now that's demonstrably false. Four days, he went from this isn't consistent with evolutionary theory. Now we know it's totally evolutionary. But it gets even better. It gets even better. Mr. Anderson and three of the other people on this call write an article a few weeks later that says COVID is not a laboratory construct. And while they're writing that article, there's an email from March 6th where Mr. Anderson offers to let Dr. Fauci edit the article before it's published. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. When the article is published, Dr. Fauci cites it at a White House press conference when he is asked by a reporter about the origin of the virus. Cites the very article he put in motion on the conference call and he was allowed to edit. At the White House, where he's supposed to be giving the American people the truth, 
he references an article that he manufactured. Now, maybe I'm wrong about all this. Maybe it didn't work out this way. I think I'm right. Maybe it didn't work out this way. But it would have been nice, Mr. Chairman, if Dr. Fauci would come today and answer our questions. He could have come here and defend himself, but he didn't have the courage to do it. And you know else who wouldn't come? Remember that email about the P3 framework? We invited Dr. Hassel to come too. He's the individual who chairs that oversight board. We invited him to come today too, and he wouldn't come. They, they, I, I'm convinced these guys knew right from the get-go what the truth was, and they misled the American people. Oh, here's the other thing. You know that conference call? That conference call? We got the emails regarding the conference call from February 2nd. All these guys, all these guys were emailing back and forth. They were on that conference call. Here's what we got on the FOIA request. Here's all their emails. Every single thing is redacted. Every single thing is redacted about what took place in that conference call because I'm convinced it was at that conference call where they said, we got to cover our tracks. And again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But Dr. Fauci could have been sitting right there and answering our questions and he wouldn't come today. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Jordan. And let the record reflect that Dr. Fauci was invited uh, Friday afternoon. He declined. Uh, with that, we'll go to uh, Dr. Miller-Meeks for opening. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Mr. Scalise, Representative Scalise. Uh, thank you uh, to also Representative Comer and all of our panelists for coming. Um, it's unfortunate that the entire committee could not join us for this important discussion because, as we've already heard, understanding the origins of COVID-19 pandemic has both public health and national security implications. We all know that Wuhan, China, where the COVID-19 virus originated, is home to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is China's only cellular level four biosafety super laboratory that researches human infectious diseases. This lab is only a few miles away from the wet market that is said to be the origin of COVID-19. As many of my colleagues have already stated, I went to the floor earlier this month to call for a full and thorough investigation into the origins of COVID-19. There needs to be a serious investigation into the origins of COVID-19, and we must uncover what the Chinese Communist Party knew and when, and what the World Health Organization knew and when. Why do we think that this came from a laboratory or a lab leak as versus to natural evolutionary? One is the initial concern by scientists and the fact that their article was removed by the Chinese Communist Party off of the internet. Two is the proximity of WIV to the wet market. Three, no intermediate host, and we know that we rapidly discovered the inter intermediate host for both SARS and MERS. Four, the Chinese Communist Party vigorously lobbied WHO to both deny human-to-human -human transmission and to avoid or delay um, announcing uh, an international uh, emergency or pandemic. Five, um, the removal of scientific papers by Chinese um, scientists from the internet early in 2020, and then as previously stated, they took their database offline last fall. Um, we also know that the speed and rapidity and the number of variants and then the unique genetic code. So we must hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for their misstep, missteps, of which this is only one. While they were stalling and not notifying the World Health Organization about the extent of the COVID-19 outbreak, the Department of Homeland Security Intelligence Enterprise found that the CCP used this time to stockpile masks, gowns, and gloves. This lost time put U.S. frontline workers at risk, 
and undoubtedly contributed to at least some of the 600,000 U.S. deaths from COVID-19. To prevent something like this from happening in the future, we must seriously consider and examine how much scrutiny we place on laboratories working with highly infectious agents. Furthermore, we need to make sure our media gatekeepers are more cautious and allow science to work before censoring information or suppressing information. While no scientific changes have occurred, the media has recently decided to allow the theory that the SARS-CoV-2 originated in a lab to actually be shared with the American people. This is after a year of downplaying and scrutinizing that theory. And people rightly may ask, why does it matter what the origins of COVID are? We've lived through the pandemic, the vaccines are working, and we're getting back to normal. But as a former director of the Iowa Department of Public Health and as a physician, I know that this pandemic will not be the last. We must get to the bottom of the origins to try to prevent our next public health emergency. As a member of Congress, I believe it is our responsibility to ensure that other nations live up to their responsibilities and that international organizations in which we participate and fund are well-regulated and beneficial for the American people. International health regulations state that each state party shall notify WHO within 24 hours of all events which may constitute a public health emergency of international concern. According to the reports from Hong Kong, the CCP identified cases of COVID-19 going all the way back to November 17, 2019, over a month before the WHO was officially notified or publicly notified. If the CCP had complied with these regulations, it's possible we could have worked with our international partners to more quickly contain the virus, limit travel, isolate people before they traveled, and shut down travel more rapidly. More urgency about the virus if it was a lab leak versus of natural evolutionary causes, less complacency of individuals. It's incumbent upon the international community to have safety protocols for the laboratories, the type of research that can be conducted. Is it ethical to bring a virus from the wild into a laboratory? And is it ethical to have gain-of-function research that increases its transmission in humans? Also, publications in uh, prestigious journals, which is what we as scientists and doctors like to do and for which we aspire. But should they publish um, uh, scientific uh, articles if the lab is not in compliance with safety standards or if there is not full disclosure and financial disclosure and conflicts of interest? Should we have uh, viruses that are in the wild that we bring into laboratories and then manipulate them for gain-of-function research. As Representative Scalise said, this is the Chernobyl of virus research, and it should underscore the need for increased scrutiny of gain-of-function research anywhere in the world. Because it is the humorous, hubris and arrogance of human scientists that failed the basic function of security and safety. If we are going to be serious about advancing scientifically in order to prepare for our next pandemic, then we must let science work. We must allow for debate and dissenting views to be heard, or we may never get to the root cause of this problem and hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Miller-Meeks. And now, uh, Dr. Mark Green. Thank you, uh, Ranking Member Scalise and uh, Ranking Member Comer. It's great to be back on an oversight committee with uh, Ranking Member Comer. Um, thank you both for, for setting this up. For many months, we have asked Speaker Pelosi to investigate the origins of this virus that has led to over 600,000 deaths in this country 
and disrupted our society for well over a year. It's a shame that our Democrat colleagues continue to refuse to hold this very important hearing. For most of the pandemic, anyone who raised questions about the origin of the virus was dismissed as some crazy conspiracy theorist. Yet despite the efforts of some of the media and all of big tech, the World Health Organization and the Chinese Communist Party, we continue to find increasing evidence suggesting that this pandemic can be traced back to the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, China. Our panel of distinguished experts can speak in further detail to the mounting scientific evidence pointing to the origins of the pandemic. We now know that the lab in Wuhan was conducting gain-of-function research specifically on bat coronaviruses. If this pandemic was indeed the result of a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it would be one of the greatest medical cover-ups in human history. Gain-of-function research should never be done at an unsafe lab. Covered up by a ruthless authoritarian government, setting off a worldwide pandemic that has left more than 3.9 million people dead around the world. From the very beginning, Beijing has actively sought to deceive the world on the origin and severity of COVID-19. As the virus was spreading in Wuhan, the CCP silenced whistleblowers such as Dr. Li Wenliang and censored others who warned about the outbreak. Furthermore, the Chinese government consistently underreported cases and deaths, which continues to this day. What are the chances that the epicenter of the virus, a nation of over a billion people, has suffered around 5,500 deaths and only 120,000 cases? Through the World Health Organization, the Chinese government spread propaganda denying evidence of human-to-human -human transmission and claiming that the spread was under control. Meanwhile, according to a DHS report, while China was deceiving the world about the seriousness of the virus, it was also working to buy up PPE around the world, increasing its imports of surgical masks by 278%. Then, of course, we know they turned around and sold it back to Italy, who had donated it to China. How many lives could have been saved had the world been made aware when Beijing was made aware? To this day, the CCP continues to obstruct efforts to get to the truth about the origins of the pandemic. A spokesman for the Chinese Foreign Ministry shamelessly accused the United States military of bringing the virus to China, and the Chinese government has threatened to sanction American lawmakers who criticized the regime's handling of the pandemic. When the World Health Organization finally sent a team to investigate, the CCP completely controlled the investigation from vetoing proposed team members and restricting access to exercising editorial control over the final report. The only American the CCP allowed was Peter das Dasik of Echo Health Alliance, the same group which channeled the NIH funding for coronavirus research to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. There's much that remains to be investigated about the origins of COVID-19, we have to understand the origins of this pandemic to prevent future pandemics. Today's forum is the kind of honest and open examination of the evidence that the American people deserve. Evidence that was ignored and suppressed when it contradicted some of the media's preferred narrative. Again, we have to ask, why is the Democrat Party not participating in this? Why are our colleagues on the other side of the aisle not participating in this?
Why do they not want to get to the bottom of where this virus came from? Where is the pangolin? Somebody tell me, where's the pangolin? We haven't found him yet. There's a strong indication, and we're looking forward to questions today in our, in our testimony today, but the question remains, where are the Democrats on this? Well, I would submit to you, it is one of the most consistent things on, on, on the other side of the aisle, is their relaxed uh, lack of interest, lack of concern about the threats from China. They continue to forgive millions incarcerated in Wuhan, China, or in, uh, you know, Xinjiang, the Uyghurs. They don't seem to care about intellectual property theft. They don't seem to care about their state-owned enterprises competing unfairly with subsidies from their taxpayers' coffins, coffers. The Democrats don't want to hold China accountable. That might be something else we look into. But for today, I look forward to the opportunity to ask questions to get to the bottom of the origin of the virus. And Mr. Chairman, with that, I yield. Appreciate that, Dr. Green. And now to bring up our expert panelists. And, and again, I thank each of you for coming. Uh, you all in your own rights have done extensive research, both in following the science and in getting the facts, which is what we intend to do today. And this is probably the greatest gathering of scientists who have actually done real research into the origins of COVID-19 that has ever been assembled here in Washington's capital. So uh, with that, let's start with you, Dr. Girard, no, uh, no stranger to these members. We've seen you testify before many committees. Uh, Dr. Girard was the Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in the Trump administration. He also served as an admiral in the Public Health Service commissioned Corps and U.S. representative to the executive board of the World Health Organization. As a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, he was known as the testing czar and did a phenomenal job at coming together and bringing people together uh, to address uh, that lack of testing to ultimately get to a point where Americans could be tested. We owe a great deal of gratitude to you for your previous work. Dr. Girard, thank you for the work you've been doing on this investigation and you may begin. Ranking members Comer and Scalise, members of the House Committee and Select Subcommittee, thank you for allowing me to provide my perspectives on the origin of COVID-19. Perspective number one, although we do not yet have indisputable evidence pinpointing the exact origin of the virus that causes COVID-19, I assess that the most likely origin was an accidental infection of laboratory personnel from the Wuhan Institute of Virology with secondary transmission to the local population and subsequent spread to hundreds of millions of people around the world. It is essential that Congress provides leadership for a comprehensive, transparent, and unbiased investigation to determine, one, the most likely origin of the virus, two, whether the NIH funded directly or indirectly, or approved of explicitly or tacitly, potentially dangerous research within the Wuhan lab, and three, what the U.S. can do to minimize the possibility of future pandemics and enable rapid global containment of any suspicious infectious outbreak. Perspective number two, there is an increasing body of evidence pointing to a lab leak origin of the virus. One, the WHO investigation published March 1st failed to detect the presence of the virus after testing more than 80,000 wildlife, 
livestock, and poultry samples from 31 provinces in China. Moreover, the closest virus found in nature was, quote, several decades of evolution removed from the COVID-19 virus. And we now know definitively that the Wuhan wet market was not the origin of the virus, but was a site of secondary spread. Point number two, we know that the Wuhan lab was conducting potentially dangerous research on bat coronaviruses and their ability to cause pandemics, including gain-of-function research. This was proven in a 2015 Nature Medicine publication in which investigators from Wuhan and collaborators across the globe reported the creation of a new hybrid bat coronavirus that could bind to and infect human airway cells. Number three, since that 2015 publication, there have been multiple NIH grants to the EcoHealth Alliance, all entitled Understanding the Risk of Bat Coronavirus Emergence, and from the limited publicly available information, appear to be using the exact same laboratory methods that could create novel, hybrid, pandemic-causing pathogens. Number four, independent scientific studies have concluded that the first cases of COVID in China occurred sometime between mid-October and mid-November of 2019. This is the exact time frame, according to the U.S. intelligence, that some Wuhan lab workers became ill with a respiratory infection, and that, according to the Wall Street Journal, three Wuhan lab workers sought hospital care for an unknown respiratory illness. And finally, the bottom line is, I believe it is just too much of a coincidence that a worldwide pandemic caused by a novel bat coronavirus that cannot be found in nature started just a few miles away from a secretive laboratory doing potentially dangerous research on bat coronaviruses. <laughs> Sometimes the most obvious explanation is indeed the correct one. Perspective number three, the WHO cannot be relied upon to do an authoritative investigation because it is a multilateral organization with no authority to do anything in China that is not directly approved by the Chinese Communist Party. On behalf of the Trump administration in September 2020, I delivered a comprehensive roadmap of reform to the executive board of the WHO that would strengthen the WHO's global emergency preparedness and response capabilities. This roadmap would better equip the WHO for future pandemics, but by the WHO's very nature as a multilateral organization, it can never be relied on to guarantee transparency from repressive regimes, nor assure the health and safety of the American public. Finally, with regard to the WHO, when this pandemic first emerged in China, and began spreading around the world, the only eligible nation that did not have a member on the WHO executive board was the United States. That is because after I was nominated for the executive board by President Trump in November 2018, my nomination was repeatedly blocked by Senator Schumer and his Democrat colleagues, and I was not confirmed and thus the U.S. did not have visibility at the executive board level until May of 2020. Hmm. Perspective number four, the final one. The investigation of the origins of COVID-19 and the regulation of gain-of-function research cannot be left to scientists alone, many of whom have serious conflicts of interest. These conflicts include hundreds of thousands of dollars in annual salary 
pharmaceutical company paid advisory board seats, millions of dollars in grants, rights to inventions that could result in tens of millions of dollars in royalties, and perhaps most important, their reputations among an often elitist scientific community that is overwhelmingly biased against anything related to the Trump administration. Similarly, Americans should be careful of defenses of China by experts who are employed by or on the boards of companies with billions of dollars at stake in China and who fear reprisals from the Chinese Communist Party. In conclusion, it is critical to our nation, to the American people, to the world, and to future generations that we develop a bipartisan consensus on the truth of what happened. And I respectfully encourage the entire Congress to come together as truth seekers and truth tellers to accomplish this objective. Thank you for inviting me today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you for that statement, Mr. Dr. Gerard, and we will continue to seek that bipartisan cooperation. Now our next witness, Dr. David Asher. He is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Uh, most recently, he led the U.S. Department of State's arms control investigation into COVID-19's origins, and he also examined whether China's conduct constituted a violation of the Biological Weapons Convention. With that, Dr. Asher, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rep uh, Republican Whip Scalise, uh, Ranking Member Comer, and to all the members of the Select Committee on uh, examining the coronavirus uh, for inviting me today. I welcome this opportunity to speak before this important gathering of concerned Republican members. Uh, I equally would welcome the opportunity in the near future to meet with the Democratic uh, uh, majority uh, side as well. Uh, I, I'm a part of the Hudson Institute, a research institute in Washington. It's nonpartisan. Uh, I approached the investigation that I led the Department of State, not in a particularly partisan way whatsoever. Um, I've done this for Democrats and Republicans, maybe more Republicans, but it doesn't really matter. This is, a, this is an issue that affects all of us, as you pointed out. Um, in 1960, Hudson's founder, Herman Kahn, uh, famously wrote the book, Thinking About the Unthinkable. Uh, it talked about thermonuclear war and ways of reducing the likelihood of such a war. To and to, for methods of coping with the consequences should such a work occur. At Hudson, we're still guided by Dr. Kahn's principles, but I will tell you, my main concern for you today, having worked in and around WMD investigations into terrorists and proliferation networks and state adversaries, including China, for over now nearly 30 years of my life, is that we're entering an era of biological warfare, and this is the beginning of a threat level that will affect us for the rest of our lives and probably for generations to come. Uh, whether the Chinese did this uh, deliberately or not um, uh, in terms of creating this pathogen, uh, I think that the chances are that they were working on it and it was funded by the military. Uh, very, I'm very confident in that. But whether they released it or not deliberately or just had an accident, uh, I think the answer is they probably had an accident, but that doesn't matter because they allowed it to be weaponized in the wake of its release. They didn't tell us at the State Department. Uh, I stand here before you with uh, Assistant Secretary Tom Bonanno behind me who led the arms control effort at State. One of the things we did in the fall of uh, last year was really systematically look at whether the Biological Weapons Convention had been violated and what the evidence was to that effect. And uh, what we found truly disturbed us. Uh, the, the, the Chinese were working on a military-supported uh, program, which they did not declare under the Biological Weapons Convention, so they lied. Uh, it involved uh, coronaviruses, uh, which they said they weren't working on at the Wuhan Institute in their declarations to the Biological Weapons Convention. 
mysteriously at the same year in 2016, 2017 period that they stopped declaring coronavirus research as it being occur as occurring at the Wuhan Institute. Um, they um, kicked off the classified research with the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. Um, there's a lot of things that I could talk about if you want to answer, if there's any questions you've got. But let me just talk about some things I recommend you consider doing immediately as members of Congress. Uh, and then, uh, I, 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 actually, before that, I'll talk about some things I think the Biden administration itself should do. First, we should stop funding the Chinese communists research into biology. Um, uh, it's, it's this dangerous gain of function collaboration with China has to end. I, I'm shocked we wouldn't as a government, including my own nonproliferation related colleagues at state, uh, say that this was basically aiding a bad eating an enemy adversary, a national adversary. Secondly, we've got to enforce our treaty compliance. That should uh, be a focus across the board. The Biological Weapons Convention has been violated. The State Department should not have said that it's case closed and we should not continue a Biological Weapons Convention investigation uh, into a violation. There has been a violation. Legally, the State Department's bound to continue this investigation under this administration. Sanctions. China needs to be coerced. They need to feel the pain. It's a year and a half after this thing broke out, the clocks have melted, time has not stood still like a Salvador Dali painting, except in Beijing where they're sitting around saying, wow, look what we've been able to get away with. And uh, as their economy grows 18.2% the last quarter and exports are up 49%. Um, we have tools at our disposal, Executive Order 13382 on WMD proliferation particularly. We also need to get prepared for the next pandemic. There's a lot that can be done with forward biothreat sensors. Next, what should you do, in my personal opinion? Expert commission, 9-11-like commission. I had friends dying on 9-11. I'm sure you did, too. But we've had a lot more friends who've died of COVID-19, and the impact of this is, is more resonant than anything we've ever seen. Secondly, stop exporting our most precious biotech capabilities overseas, especially to China. Third, we need to amend the chem uh, Chemical and Biological Control and Warfare Elimination Act to impose sanctions on entities, individuals, and peristatals that are involved in this type of malevolent work to threaten our country. Finally, I'd unleash the civil litigation uh, uh, lawyers to uh, ambulance chase on behalf of the victims of this tragedy ep pandemic, which could have been averted had the Chinese only told us that it was spreading human to human asymptomatically at the beginning of January. Thank you for your time. All right, thank you for your remarks, Dr. Asher. Next is Dr. Stephen Quay. He's a physician and a scientist with hundreds of published scientific articles. Uh, Dr. Quay has been cited over 10,000 times, holds 87 patents across 22 different fields of medicine, and he's invented seven different FDA-approved medicines. Further, he conducted an early analysis of COVID-19, which has been downloaded nearly 200,000 times. He's an expert in the field and brings an upper echelon of analysis to the question we're posing today about the origins. Now to you, Dr. Quay. <clears throat> uh, thank you, uh, Congressman Scalise and Comer, members of the subcommittee of the coronavirus crisis, ladies and gentlemen. I, approach, I appreciate the nonpartisan approach the subcommittee is taking today, clearly science in the last few years, but especially on the topics related to the COVID pandemic, has been co-opted by geopolitics. Thus, I am here not as a mouthpiece for any particular party, but as an American scientist. I dedicate my testimony today to the more than 600,000 Americans that this pandemic has killed so far 
with the hope by, that by clarifying the origin of COVID, we can help to prevent future pandemics and the loss of innocent lives. Given this backdrop, I will be keeping my remarks today to matters of science. I'll state facts and evidence about the pandemic that I have collected. I'll explain why those facts lead to certain conclusions, allow a particular inference, or rule, rule out a hypothesis about the origin. Today's testimony is an effort to answer the question poised on December 30th, 2019 by Dr. Sengji Shi, the head of coronavirus research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. She had just been told that a novel coronavirus had caused an outbreak of pneumonia at hospitals close to her laboratory in Wuhan. In what I believe was her last unscripted public utterance, she has been quoted as saying, could they have come from our lab? In the last 18 months, we've learned an intense amount about the origin of the pandemic. But one of my frustrations is that virologists and science writers around the world seem to want to ignore what has been learned and the inevitable consequence, conclusion it reveals. As inconvenient as it is, I believe the evidence conclusively establishes that the COVID pandemic was a, not a natural process, but instead came from a laboratory in Wuhan, China, and that it has the fingerprints of genetic manipulation through a process called gain-of-function research. There are six undisputed facts that support this hypothesis. Now, as a reminder, the top left there, uh, a little science, as a reminder, all zoonoses are diseases that involve a virus infecting an animal, the animal coming in contact with a human, and then the human being infected. The question of the origin of a zoonosis is the question of the location of the animal. In natural zoonoses, the animal is in nature, a cave, a farm, or the market. The infected human comes in contact with the animal and gets sick. For lab-acquired zoonoses, the animal is in a laboratory or in cells from an animal in a petri dish, and the human works in that lab. In deciding between a natural origin and the lab, and the lab origin, there are six facts no one disagrees with. Number one. The Chinese first told the world that the COVID pandemic began in the Hunan seafood market because approximately one half of the early, early cases had been associated with that location. This would, this would have been reminiscent of the two previous coronavirus epidemics as both SARS-1 and MERS began in live animal markets. However, after 18 months of investigation, we now know it did not begin in a market in Wuhan for the following three reasons. First, none of the 11 patients from the Hunan market or any other market in Wuhan were infected with the earliest virus, meaning they came into the market already infected. The four patients with the earliest genetic version of the virus all had one thing in common. None had any exposure to the Hunan market. Second, we know in January 2020 from public scientific databases that the patient with the earliest first complete virus sequence was a 39-year-old man treated at the General Hospital of Central Theater Command of the People's Liberation Army of China, located on Wuho Road in, Wu, in the Wuchang district of Wuhan, about three kilometers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. After 18 months and almost three million viruses sequenced worldwide, this virus still remains the earliest. Second, none of the environmental specimens from the market had the earliest virus, meaning they also came into the market. This included 1,055 samples of frozen food in the market, all of which tested negative for COVID. Third, 457 animals from Hunan market were tested. All were negative for COVID. 616 animals from suppliers to the market were tested. All were negative. 
1,864 wild animals from southern China of the type found in the market were tested. They were also all negative. These data from the from the publicly available WHO report established that it did not begin in the Hunan market or any other market in Wuhan. Number two, failing to find it in any market in Wuhan, the search was expanded to all of China. But after, uh, after testing 80,000 samples from 209 different species from other markets, farms, and nature, the virus has not been found in a single specimen. The probability of this for a community-acquired infection is about one in a million. This is what you'd expect for a lab-acquired infection. Number three, after testing 9,952 stored human blood specimens from hospitals in Wuhan from before December 29th, there was not a single case of COVID in any specimen. It was expected that between 100 and 400 would be positive. The probability of this for a community-acquired infection is also about one in a million. But this is what you'd expect for a lab-acquired infection. There is no evidence of multiple animal-to-human transmissions. With two prior coronavirus outbreaks, SARS-1 and MERS, 50 to 90% of early cases were from various animal-to-human infections. For SARS-CoV-2, 249 early cases of, of COVID-19 were examined genetically, and they all were human-to-human -human transmission. For a community-acquired infection, this is the probability of tossing a coin 249 times and getting heads every single time. Wow. This is, however, what you'd expect for a lab-acquired infection. Number five, SARS-CoV-2 has a unique trigger on its surface called a furin cleavage site and a unique code in the genes for that site called a CGG-CGG dimer. So these are two independent levels of uniqueness. The furin site is why the virus is so transmissible, why it invades the heart, the brain, and the blood vessels. Viruses like Ebola, HIV, Zika, yellow fever, all use furin sites, and this is part of the reason for their deadliness. But the entire group of coronaviruses in which SARS-CoV-2 belongs does not contain a single example of a furin site or a single example of the CGG-CGG dimer code. A comprehensive study by MIT group shows that there has never been a furin site or the CGG letter dimer in this group of coronaviruses for at least a thousand years, since William won the Battle of Hastings in 1066 to become monarch of England. But since 1992, in gain-of-function experiments, the WIV and other laboratories around the world have inserted furin sites into viruses repeatedly. It is the only sure method that always works and always makes them more infectious. And the CGG-CGG code found in COVID-19 is commonly used in laboratories around the world, including the WIV. You can literally order it from a supply company on the internet. By the way, some virologists have said, well, but Dr. Quay, furin sites and codon dimers occur in one or more other of the four classes of coronaviruses, and with a process called recombination, a COVID-like virus could pick one up. This is wrong for three reasons based on well-known fundamental biology, probably college level. Because coronaviruses do exchange uh, genetic material so easily, the very existence and stability of these five distinct groups is evidence from nature that there must be barriers for exchange of genetic material. I've spoken previously about the 1,000-year stability of the group of COVID that COVID belongs to. If recombination was easy, this group would have merged into the other four into a single group. Two things stop recombination from happening. 
and this includes research by Dr. Dasik and she, by the way. First, recombination happens when one poor bat is infected with two different viruses, and during that co-infection, the genetic material gets exchanged. So here, the group of viruses that have furincytes and CGG dimers don't infect the same bat species as the COVID-like viruses that don't have furincytes. So the COVID viruses can only exchange genetic material within their group, the group that hasn't had a furincite or a CGG dimer for a thousand years. Now second, even if you force two different viruses into a cell in the laboratory, there are unique genetic sequences that are required for gene combination or recombination to, to occur. The hotspots where exchange can occur are different for each group and incompatible between the groups. In a clever use of this concept, Dr. Ralph Barrick, a leading coronavirus scientist from North Carolina, once made a vaccine candidate that was resistant to recombination. He didn't want to reco recombine after he put it out in the world. He did this by using syn synthetic biology to change the hotspot genes, gene sequences. Number six, finally, SARS-CoV-2 was pre-adapted for human-to-human -human transmission from the very first patient. Specifically, the part of the virus that interacts with human cells was 99.5% optimized. When SARS-1 first jumped into humans, it had only 17% of the changes needed to cause an epidemic. As evidence of the relevance of this work, the UK strain, remember last fall, in the fall of 2020 that emerged and was more effective, was a change in one of those 17 few spots that hadn't been opti optimized at the beginning, N501Y. Some virologists may claim COVID virus was not pre-adapted and point to evidence that it has been mutating a lot since it first emerged, uh, mark making new variants like the Delta strain currently in, in the news. But the details tell a different story. COVID does randomly make, on average, about one genetic mistake every two weeks. So after a year of circulating the globe, it will naturally have, on average, 26 changes somewhere in its genetic code compared to when it started. But the vast majority of these mistakes are either neutral, having no effect on de the deadliness of the virus, or actually detrimental, making the virus weaker. Less than 1% of the changes actually improve the virus. So how do I believe the COVID virus was taught to infect humans in a laboratory? A commonly, commonly used gain-of-function method to optimize the COVID virus would have been to serial passage in a laboratory on a humanized, genetically modified mouse that can develop a human-like pneumonia. You take 20 mice, you infect them, you wait a week, and then you recover the virus from the sickest mouse. Then you take another 20 and you do it again, and suddenly you're starting to kill the mice. And finally, after several weeks, through this di directed evolution, you'll produce a a mouse that can kill every humanized, a virus that can kill every humanized mouse. However, it's actually a challenge to create that humanized mice for the serial passage in the first place. Here, the WIV has acknowledged that for several years they've worked with humanized mice developed in Dr. Ralph Barrick's laboratory in North Carolina and funded at U.S. taxpayers' expense. Uh, in closing, let me say to the families of those who have died from, from COVID, Families of, those who, uh, 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 families of those who have died from COVID, I'm, de I'm dedicated to applying my scientific and medical expertise to understanding how this pandemic happened and importantly, helping put safeguards in place at our research institutions to be sure this never happens again. Thank you. Riveting testimony, Dr. Quay, appreciate the work you've done in sharing that. And now finally, to bring us to Dr. Richard Muller. Uh, Dr. Muller's a professor emeritus of physics at the University of California, Berkeley. He's worked across his field of study, leading the two efforts that have won Nobel Prizes and 
the National Science Foundation Alan T. Waterman Award for Outstanding Research. His scientific expertise has been vital to the work that we're doing. Dr. Muller, appreciate you coming. Thank you very much, Mr. Comer, Mr. Scalise. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's extremely important. Having just listened to Dr. Quay's comments, I think we need to recognize the power of science. And uh, previous speakers have said that we may never know the origin. What they, I think that is incorrect. I think when we bring the power of science to this, uh, we can reach conclusions that are, uh, that, that are very powerful. Um, uh, Dr. Quay has covered most of the science that is most relevant. I would like to emphasize five points, each of which is capable of separating and distinguishing between a natural origin, a zoonotic origin, and the uh, lab, uh, lab origin. So let, let me just draw your attention to these five. Uh, the first one is the absence of a pre-pandemic infections. Uh, he mentioned that. And uh, with, with, with not over 9,000 samples taken in Wuhan, no uh, pre-pandemic infections, it's, that's unprecedented. That didn't happen with MERS, didn't happen with SARS, doesn't happen with other viruses. Unprecedented. It's very difficult to explain. Papers are being written trying to explain it, but those papers aren't evidence. They're what you do when you're, when you're stuck and the evidence uh, disagrees with you. Um, the absence of a host animal. Uh, if you look at the famous Lancelet article, one of the reasons they say you can dismiss these conspiracy theories of lab origin is because they, they explicitly say China has identified the host animal. They've identified the, the, the location. And they even praise China for its openness. This paper, The Lancet, does not read well when we look at it uh, 16 months later. I recommend everybody reread it and see whether there's any value in that. Uh, the uh, unprecedented genetic purity uh, that Dr. Quay talked about. Again, MERS, SARS, previous viruses don't have this, but it is exactly what you would expect if you've gone through gain of function. So each one of these things is, 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 is compelling. Uh, by itself, if we had any one of the five things, I've gone, these are three of them, we should conclude that, that the evidence strongly uh, favors the lab uh, origin. Um, the, the, the spike mutation, uh, the fact that there's no known way for that spike mutation to get there other than by gene insertion in a laboratory is a very powerful argument. And, um, and, and again, there are papers written that try to explain this away, but those papers aren't presenting evidence. The evidence in favor of the natural zoonotic origin, there isn't any. The only evidence that's cited is, well, it looks like another zoonotic uh, case, where those cases are quite common, but there's no scientific evidence uh, supporting those. And, and finally, the fact that uh, this virus was uh, optimized of in, 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 to attack humans again, something that has never happened in other in in in, in natural releases, um, but it does happen if you run it through the gain of function. So there's really no all of the scientific evidence uh, argues in favor of the uh, laboratory origin. Um, the, the, the papers against it, the, the famous paper by Christian Anderson in Nature Medicine, uh, his argument against uh, the, uh, the, the, the lab leak case was the fact, his claim, 
that the that the, the, the spike protein had not been optimized, and it certainly would have been. That is his one argument against it in that paper that is so widely quoted. But recent evidence, as Dr. Quay talked about, shows that it was 99.5% optimized. I'm going to end with a little anecdote, uh, a story of, uh, that, that is, is horrifying and more frightening than almost anything else in my life. Uh, in the early days when I was trying to teach myself virology, I called several of my friends uh, who are expert in virology. One of them, I asked him if he could help me review some of this literature, this anti, the, the, the literature that suggested that there was a lab leak. And he said, no, uh, I'm sorry, Rich, I, I, can't, I can't do that. Well, okay, is there someone in your lab who could do it? No, nobody in my lab will do it. Uh, well, why not? Well, let me be candid. If anybody in my laboratory is discovered to be working on a laboratory leak hypothesis, China will label us enemies of China, and the laboratory will be blacklisted, and we will no longer be able to collaborate. We collaborate all the time with China. Uh, nobody will, will, will take that risk. This, 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 chilling, this is one of the most chilling conversations I've had in my life. Uh, the idea that China has managed to, 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 to interfere, to break um, United States freedom of expression, freedom of investigation, freedom of thought uh, by, by, by through this collaboration effort, really scary. So and, and let, let me just, just say that um, uh, some people say we will never know, not until China confesses. Uh, or unless there's a whistleblower. Well, we have a whistleblower. It was the virus itself. It came here, it came out of China, it came to us, and it carried with us genetic information. With And, and there, there are, in my mind, five compelling sets of scientific uh, evidence that allow us to reach this very strong conclusion that, yes, it was a laboratory leak. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Dr. Mueller. And again, riveting testimony from all of you. Uh, clearly, as we listen to the science, the data that you've presented, it raises even more questions. We're going to go into the first round of questions, and there is a vote going on in the House floor, so you'll see members getting up, going, and coming back. But we're going to continue this because I think it's real important that we get as many questions answered as possible. Again, there are people who were invited who didn't come today and kind of underscores the point that if there were subpoena powers, then we could have compelled uh, more scientists to come. Why they didn't want to come is a mystery. All we're trying to do is get facts. Uh, if, they're, if they have nothing to hide, they should be here because this is a question everybody wants to know the answer to. People all across the country are not satisfied that, okay, we have a vaccine, but now as we're starting to get our economy opened again, shouldn't we find out how this happened? Uh, shouldn't we get to the bottom of this to prevent it from happening again at the minimum? But, but if it was a lab leak, uh, that raises serious questions. And so all of you have talked about not only the hypothesis of a lab leak, but in fact, the near certainty that this was a lab leak. And so let's get into some of those facts. And the biggest facts that I've seen are, number one, with over 80,000 animals tested, maybe the largest testing that's been done uh, for a, a vac virus like this, uh, not a single animal has been found. You've talked about what gain-of-function res uh, gain research can, 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 can do to ultimately expedite and make this a virus that's much more 
much more invasive to, to cause damage to people to be spread at a level where it looks like it has been around a lot longer, maybe over a decade. And so uh, I guess if I could start with you, Dr. Girard, when you look at all of this evidence, do we know if there are any scientists in America who were in communication with any of the scientists at the Wuhan lab uh, who may be able to shed a little more light of what happened and how could this kind of leak occur? So uh, thank you for the question. I, I'm not, I personally was not in communication with anyone there. I think it's very likely that Dr. Fauci was because they were NIAID uh, recipients directly or indirectly, but that's the reason why you need to ask him that question. I, I do not know that. I think it's probably likely that uh, Bob Redfield, who had extensive ties and I know was on the phone 24-7 uh, for weeks trying to get information from China and the WHO, might have had those, but, but I don't know that for certain, and I, I certainly didn't have communication with them. And how, how could a leak like this occur? We've seen with SARS, there have been other uh, problems with labs and maybe the safety well, of this, this Wuhan lab. Well, the I question's think it's been, been pointed raised. out that lab leaks are not uncommon. Uh, the last, I believe, six deaths from SARS were all from lab leaks. There was a lab leak of smallpox. Um, it's widely uh, assessed that the 1978 pandemic of influenza was probably due to a lab leak. So lab leaks occur even under the best of circumstances because these viruses are adapted to be highly infectious so that only a few viral particles could cause an infection. And particularly with this virus, with so much asymptomatic spread, uh, a person could have spread it to dozens or hundreds or thousands of people before any symptom actually arose. And we do have troubling reports that were from uh, the State Department and other uh, agencies uh, of potential work being done at a much lower level of biosafety than should have been done at this level. So uh, lab leaks are not uncommon at all. Um, these are incredibly dangerous microbes that are highly infectious and evolved to be that way. So the fact that there would be a lab leak, particularly where there has been issues of biosafety, does not surprise me and would not surprise any honest scientist in this country. Uh, Dr. Asher, you had given a few specific recommendations. One of those was stop funding uh, the CCP research into biological uh, weapons, biolo biologics in general, uh, because of this, unfortunately, the, this obfuscation. I mean, we've seen the Communist Chinese Party uh, covering up information, maybe destroying evidence, uh, corrupting the World Health Organization. Uh, how long has this been a concern? And, and clearly this is something we need to address sooner rather than later. But if you can talk yeah, more about briefly, that. The, I've been worried about this. I was a senior advisor for East Asian Pacific Affairs under the Bush administration and stayed and then went on to run our programs against North Korea and the AQ Khan uh, network really financially and some other things. And, you know, but, but on China, it's been as an Asia hand for since you know, 34 years of my life, uh, I've been shocked at the sort of lack of cognizance in our scientific community. And I am deeply involved with our scientific community as a venture capitalist separate from the Hudson Institute, mostly in biotech. Um, we're just not really thinking about the dual use nature of synthetic biology. It's, it's it, you know, which is, which is ironic since in 2018, the National Academy of Sciences put out a very a strong study uh, warning about biotech dual use capabilities fueling biological warfare related uh, capabilities in, in, in adversarial uh, nations, and, and including in our own nation, they could get out of one of our labs. 
So, you know, we're at a stage here, which the scientists can talk about better than me, where you can do things uh, with, uh, with biology that can create a, essentially a, a weapon uh, as a uh, gain-of-function experiment. And if it gets out of a lab and you don't stop it, like happened in China, it becomes a weapon. You know, so they, they, this, is, this, this is to me a huge issue for you, sir, and, your, and all of the members of Congress. And I'll ask this to, to each of you as my final question, because there has been a lot of debate about gain-of-function research, and clearly it has been conducted over time. Uh, just how directly or indirectly taxpayer funding was involved in the Wuhan labs, gain-of-function re- research is something that we should be investigating more. But in general, uh, weighing the pros and cons, uh, especially in relation to uh, these kind of viruses, do, you, do any one of you want to uh, discuss or talk about what we should be looking at in terms of policy regarding gain-of-function research. Dr. Quay, I'd start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think because I'd like to get something done, you know, the, 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 the good is better than the impossible that you can't get done. Uh, I would strongly recommend that gain-of-function research be placed under the infrastructure of the Institutional Review Board so that any federal funding of gain-of-function research has to, the pros and cons of that research has to be presented to an independent a, a party of lay people from the community where the laboratory is, and they get to decide if this sounds too dangerous. I think, I think one of the things we saw here was that the gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was set up to be reviewed inside the NIH, and it was never sent to them to look at. So we've proven that the current structure fails, but as, a, as someone who's invented seven drugs and worked with IRBs, 30, 30 different clinical trials, um, they're very good at balancing you know, risk to the, to the humans and, and safety. I can't do one study in clinical trials without an IRB, and, and we have 200 million people infected here with no, no oversight. And Dr. Girard. I, I certainly Dr. support Moore. local review, but the national level federal review has to be overhauled. Number one, uh, how do we know that any gain-of-function research or something that could be interpreted actually gets into the P3 NIH process? And we saw from the emails that there were no coronavirus uh, work that actually got into the process. So there's an intake issue. Number two, there's a transparency issue. Who is reviewing it? What are their conflicts of interest? What are the criteria that they have um, that allow or disallow and again, I, I do agree that this can't just be scientists who work in infectious diseases. They are not experts in national security. They're not experts in ethical considerations. It has to be transparent. It has to be multidisciplinary. And somebody needs to be accountable. Um, that means either the head of that institute or the head of the NIH needs to side on the mm-hmm. dotted line and it must be transparent to Congress. I would say that in addition to the local review, which would be a second level. Dr. Muller, I think Yeah, I'm not that concerned about gain-of-function research in the United States. I think that some legislation could take care of that. The issue is what do we do about China? What do we do about terrorist groups? I, what we need here is a strengthening of the Biological Warfare Convention, something that demands that we have access to these laboratories and see what's going on. We could cut out all gain-of-function research in the United States. It would do no good if the Wuhan Institute of Virology just closes its doors, doesn't let anybody see what it's doing, and continues on. So we need to have sanctions that will demand that China and other countries be open and accessible and their data be, 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 be transparent. Very important recommendations. Thank you. Now, Mr. Comer. Thank you, Ranking Member Scalise. Dr. Asher, a story came out last week that the NIH 
confirmed. Uh, the Chinese scientists asked them to eliminate gene sequences of early COVID-19 cases just three months after sending them. Uh, Dr. Asher, isn't it true that the best chance to understand a virus is to analyze the gene sequence as close to patient zero as possible? Well, rather than I answer that, I'd like to defer, if it's okay, uh, Representative Comer, to Dr. Quay as a scientist, okay. that I could ask, answer some other aspect. Uh, yeah, the elimination of, of that particular database was uh, irresponsible or, yeah. And, and they gave no basis for doing so. Um, it's it's so, very disappointing. What we found from that database was that actually the PLA patient that I identified is not the genetically earliest, but it's it, they were about six weeks earlier and before the Hunan market. But there could be so much additional information if additional files were, were found. So initially it was claimed without any evidence that there was no possible way the virus came from the lab. We've, we've been through that many times thus far. In fact, anyone who asserted this so-called lab leak theory was, was labeled a conspiracy theorist or even by Nancy Pelosi, a, a racist. So Dr. Quay, both your testimony and Dr. Mueller's testimony outlined several key pieces of evidence which favor the idea this virus came from a lab rather than zoonotic origins. Dr. Quay, can you give us more information about the behavior and sequencing of prior coronavirus epidemics like SARS and, and MERS? Well, I can, and just a personal comment on the racist. My wife is Chinese, so, um, and my children then are half Chinese. Um, so w with, with respect to the SARS-1 and MERS and SARS-CoV-2, I, I think one of the things you need to, uh, you always want to be able to quantify gain of function. I think the best way to quantify it is SARS-1 is natural and about 5,000 people were infected. MERS was natural and about 7,000 people were affected. SARS-2 is not natural and we're at, what, 200 million and counting and probably asymptomatic over a billion. That's kind of the relative power that you should think about with what we're doing with this. Um, and so sequence data is, is, is absolutely critical. Um, I'm, I mean, there's additional, there's additional fingerprints in, inside SARS-CoV-2. For example, there's four signals that I'm looking at, which one of them is an area where the, it looks like it, it's designed to kill cells more easily. One area is looks like it's designed to plug up the a hole in the in the, in the nucleus to uh, to prevent interferon from coming out. Why is that important? Because then you're asymptomatic. You don't sweat and get a fever from the virus. You get it from the interferon. One site looks like it, the spike protein was actually humanized so that the immune system wouldn't recognize it, to make it even harder to make a vaccine against it. Uh, and of course, we have the furin site, which makes it uh, highly infective. So. Um, we, we are missing much, much uh, 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 sequencing data uh, that the Chinese could have been, uh, been doing. I'm sorry, one, one last comment is that these, uh, there are certain machines that provide a great deal of sequencing data that's very valuable, and then there's machines that give you just the sequence and nothing else. And China instructed all of their laboratories uh, around April to only use the machines that give you just the sequence and know what's called metadata. Uh, and that's really frustrating because the metadata um, as, as I'll be showing next week from the one in virology, contains Nipah virus and Japanese encephalitis virus and many other things. Well, j just a couple of more things, Dr. Quay, I want to make sure I'm correct on. Uh, we do not have any evidence that COVID-19 infected any humans and mutated prior to developing the ability to transmit from human to human, right? That is correct. What does the fact that the virus was optimized for human to human transmission tell us about the origins of the virus? Well, again, a natural zoonosis has two processes. It jumps into humans, but it can't 
it can't do very well. It makes one person sick, or maybe they don't even know they're sick. They, they have antibodies against it, but then it's building up its repertoire. It's, it's learning how to, how to infect humans. And then finally, it takes, and this takes a year to 18 months. Right. So here, it was human to human from the get-go. Um, it, it just, Very good. Yeah, and that, that, that simply indicates yes. gain of function. That, that's what it implies. Yeah. The fact that it was human from the get-go implies gain of function. There's no way that we know that that could happen in nature. Which would mean it could only be in the lab, not from That's animal right. to human. Well, yes, right. Dr. Anderson predicted that there would be a lot of pre-epidemic uh, blood samples because it was, so, it was so adapted to humans. So when you got zero out of 10,000. And, and just to summarize with respect to the animals, which is the, what China initially said the virus came from, uh, Dr. Muller, how many animals were examined? There were 80,000. 80,000 animals were examined. But there was a set of animals that was never examined, was the humanized mice in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Ah, very good. Very good point. Of those 80,000, how many were found to be carrying the disease? Zero. 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 This is unprecedented because for SARS, in which a much weaker, smaller effort was made, they found the animal within three months. For MERS, in which it was very well hidden in camels, uh, and also a very low effort made, they found it in nine months. Uh, this was a tremendous effort to examine 80,000 animals, from farm animals to wild animals to everything you can imagine, uh, except, as I point out, uh, the, the, the animals in the, in the lab. And, uh, and having zero, uh, if, 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 if this, if, if I can't imagine that the signers of the, uh, of, of, of the Lancet article uh, would have written the same letter if they had known this. That's amazing. Thank you. I yield back. Thank you. Now let's go to Mr. Jordan. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Gerard, I want to dissect this one email that came from uh, Dr. Oshenklaus. As back to Dr. Fauci, Dr. Oshenklaus again, just, just to refresh, is, is Dr. Fauci's top deputy. So this is the email on Saturday, February 1st at 11.47 in the morning. It's in response to the one that Dr. Fauci sent in the middle of the night saying, hey, we got important things. I got to talk to you. Keep your phone on. You're going to have tasks to do, et cetera. So he gets back to him. Uh, the email says, the paper you sent me says the experiments were performed. The, the, again, the paper is about gain-of-function research in, at the Wuhan lab. Uh, uh, before the gain-of-function pause, but have since been reviewed and approved by NIH. Not sure what that means, since Emily is sure that no coronavirus work has gone through the P3 framework. She will determine if we have any synthesis this work abroad. Uh, Dr. Jawar, are you part of the, when you were in the government, were you part of the P3 framework? Uh, I was not. How it does the P3 framework, it's, uh, my understanding, it's an oversight board that is there to, uh, to decide if you are, in fact, going to fund any gain-of-function research. Is that right? Um, that's what the intent is, but how it works, how, how uh, research gets in, taken into that, it's unbelievable to me that coronavirus work would not get even into the process. If you look at the abstract from the latest grant yeah. that was done to EcoHealth, it talks about using protein sequence data, infectious clone technology, in vitro and in vivo um, infection experiments. This is all gain of function. How right. this could not get into the P3 process is unbelievable. And once it does, how does it work? So Who's on it? How do you judge? Let's just back up for a second. I should have done this, I should have done this earlier. Uh, there was a pause in any gain of function research. And my understanding was the pause was in 2014. And so for a few years, Correct. we didn't fund any of it. 
right? I don't know why we're, I mean, I think there's a fundamental question if we should be funding it at all, but we were funding it, pause 2014, was restarted a few years later, and but under the uh, the premise that if we're going to restart it, we're going to set up this P3 framework, this oversight body, this oversight function that people will have to look at this closely or a second look or whatever, some oversight look before it gets uh, funded. Who determines now in the pre- P3 framework during this time, so uh, when it was restarted, who determines what goes in front of the P3 framework or the P3 board who makes that determination? Um, I am sorry, I don't know that, and I don't think anybody knows that <laughs> about uh, uh, out of the hundreds or thousands of grants, who picks which ones go and not. And if there were truly no coronavirus work that got there, you have an intake problem. That means dozens, hundreds of. Well, someone's got to be responsible. Were- who 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 heads who heads NIH? Well, you know, ultimately the buck stops with Dr. Collins, who's the NIH director. And Dr. Stops, Fauci, he makes decisions on this? Dr. Fauci on NIAID. They are the directors. Um, ultimately, they are the responsible individuals. So in the end, the people responsible for this, who are supposed to decide if, if, if a grant proposal is going to go in front of the P3 framework board process or not, is ultimately Dr. Collins and Dr. Fauci. Is that right? They run the institutes, they run the NIH, the buck stops there. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. I think, Dr. Quay, you were getting ready to say something? Uh, well, yes, the, the moratorium started in 2014. It, it, uh, it was taken away in May 2017. And as far as I know, there's never been a grant that's gone before this, this structure, the, the P3, despite the fact that it was set up. So it was set up to look for gain-of-function research, and I, my understanding is that there's been no grant that's been sent. Well, my understanding is the guy who heads the, 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 the chair of this, of this board, this P3 uh, framework board, is Dr. Hassel. And he's even, he's even said in a, in a public forum, he volunteered this information, that he's the chair, and he said it's been very limited, the work that they've done. Very few proposals come in front of them. But, but I think maybe the, the big takeaway for us today is the people responsible for making these decisions, Dr. Collins, Dr. Fauci, we invited him, they wouldn't come. And then the guy who chairs the board, Dr. Hassel, we invited him and he wouldn't come. I think there's, I think there's, there's uh, something there. Um, do, you, do you think, well, let, let, me, let me do this question first. Dr. Muller, you, you raised something. Um, well, let me go back. Dr. Girard, why don't you think they're here? Why wouldn't they come? Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins and Mr. Hassel. Um, you know, I don't know. I know Tony and I, I know Francis uh, pretty well. Um, I, I can't imagine a reason because this is a worldwide pandemic in which millions of people have died. Um, it may have been a result of a lab leak. There will be other, and we think highly likely it is, there will be other pandemics in the future. And if there's something we need, not just Congress, and I know you need it, but the American people in the world needs it, is truth and transparency and openness and trust. And when public officials who are supposed to have our trust don't show up to members of Congress, I think that's a problem. He I'm, showed up everywhere for a year and a half. I mean, you couldn't go, you couldn't go a day. You couldn't go a day and not see Dr. Fauci somewhere. He was everywhere. I mean, he was like, He's like man of the millennial or whatever time d- declared him. I mean, he was everywhere. And now, now when we have emails that he's sending out at 12 and 2 in the morning and we have this gain of function that didn't go through the process it's supposed to go through 
and we have all this, this evidence, suddenly you can't find him. Well, you know, all those redacted emails, they're redacted to you and to me, but they're not redacted to the people who are on it. So he could read it unredacted and refresh his memory and inform Congress. And look, sure um, could. when I was in the Trump administration, I got pinged by many antagonistic members on the House or the Senate side. Uh, 100% of time, I answered questions. I came to everything because I felt it was my duty as a public servant we appreciate that. to try to be open to everyone, and you know that. Yeah, this I've is not the first time you've times. testified. So you've I testified would many times. We appreciate my that. former colleagues uh, to be open and transparent and provide that type of honesty, transparency, and trust to the American people. If Okay, I, I want to go one. If, if the chairman will indulge, I want to do one more to Mr. Gerard, then I do want to come to you, Dr. Dr. Mueller. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Uh, Gerard, uh, Admiral, in your, um, in your testimony, your written testimony in Perspective 4, you said this, investigation of the origins of COVID-19 and the regulation of gain-of-function research cannot be left to scientists alone, many of whom have serious conflicts of interest. I think that is obvious. I mean, I, that, that's in the four emails I showed that took place in a 13-hour time span, I think that is clear just from those four emails, the, the, the conflicts of interest. But I wanted to give you a little chance to, to expound on that and expand on that um, if you could. So I just thought it needed to be said. Um, I have the highest respect for scientists and physicians and for people who have uh, developed so many things that are saving lives and curing disease. But scientists are like everybody else. They're people. They have conflicts of interest. And we should be very open about that, that uh, we sort of have a little quote that we can't hide behind our white coats of self-righteousness, that we have hundreds of thousands of dollars in salaries and millions of dollars at stake. And this needs to be, this in, in reputations, I think, is very, very important among an anti, generally anti-Republican scientific community. Let me, let me, so these need to be explicitly talked about. If I could just do one follow-up to that. Were, does it concern you that, that that conference call I referenced in my opening statement, that that conference call that w between there was only one person from our government on there and all these others were scientists who were getting our tax, American taxpayers' uh, money? Does that concern you, that call, the way that that took place? Um, it, it, it's not sort of a smoking gun concern to me, but what would be a concern to me is that wasn't specifically relayed to Dr. Cadillac or the secretary of HHS or anybody on the table immediately or, or to me, um, you know, that really should have been done. This was very important. And it, you know, we say that it doesn't matter whether it was in the lab or not, but that's not necessarily true. If we would have known it were a lab derived uh, uh, bug uh, for which they probably had years of work, it might've appreciably helped our countermeasures, uh, uh, how we go about uh, understanding sure. whether it could be asymptomatic or not. So this was critical. Um, and I think that email, all that blacked out spots needs to be, maybe we don't need to know it, but Congress needs to know it and understand it. Sure do, sure do. Okay, finally, if I could, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your indulgence. Uh, Dr. Mueller, in, your, in the close of your opening uh, statement, you said that people were afraid, you talked to people in the research community, in your community, who were afraid to be doing any research that might Exposed that the truth that this came from a lab because they were concerned about getting blackballed from China. Is that right? You said something to that effect? That, that's pretty close. I, I'm not sure that they were convinced. That they didn't want to be involved in that kind of investigation. What, what, whether How that investigation would turn out, they, they weren't sure. But yes, uh, there were other reasons too. When, I, when people learned I was going to come here, uh, I live in Berkeley. I get lots of advice 
I get advice not only from my friends and colleagues in Berkeley, but I get advice from all around the country. Yeah. Uh, not one person of all my friends and advisors uh, thought I should come to this committee. So uh, the reason was because it was Republicans. My response to every one of them is I am not going to go and, you know, scientists, yes, they are often biased. You need to distinguish between scientists' opinions and science. And science is nonpartisan. Science is unbiased. Uh, I came here and I told all them I was going to come here and I will talk to anybody. Yeah. And I want to present science because I think in this case, the science by itself carries the argument. I, I don't want you to ask me for my opinions on right. things. I, I, if, I, if I stick to the science, then I can defend myself against the, the, well, my, my friends. The, the chairman just refreshed my memory. Uh, he said the words you used were enemies of China, I think you used, when anyone who would be doing research that would go against the evolutionary theory of this was, was going to be somehow attacked. But it wasn't just China. This is my point. It was everyone. Dr. Fauci was against doing that. The media was against big. If you did that, big tech went against everyone went against the people who were actually, as it turns out, you know, focusing on the truth. That is a that is a scary thing for our country. And it goes right to your point. That's about opinions and politics, not about science. And that is what has happened. What did happen for the last year and a half. And my point that I made in my opening statement was. And Dr. Fauci, I believe, based on what I showed you all, I believe knew that from the get-go and was misleading the American people. And again, maybe I'm wrong, but he could have came here and answered my questions. Uh, another quick anecdote. In September, when I called a virologist at a national laboratory and said, uh, I, need, I, I, I was soliciting some help. This is before I met Dr. Quay. I was soliciting some help on this issue. Uh, he said... Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to touch that. I'm not going to recommend anybody touch that because it would help the re-election of Donald Trump. Yep. So it was a, all was, was, a, was a political issue for some of them. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Mueller. Again, thank you for and all of you for coming to testify. We appreciate you being here, and I think you'll see that we're here to get facts, and y'all are giving us a lot of really important facts. Dr. Green, you are next up for questions. Second, the document states, the sequencing of pathogen DNA can also be used to synthesize new pathogens, causing traditional means of dealing with infectious disease to fail and rendering the prevention and control of such disease even harder. Third, the document states, quote, study of systems biology in the body can also create the potential for biological weapons based on genetic differences between races, end quote. That's from the Chinese document. 
Um, fourth, the document states drugs can be administered through aerosol, aerosolized inhalation, which can benefit in recuing recipient noncompliance, effectively spreading pathogens and disease-causing genes, end quote. Fifth, the document states, quote, foreign genes or viruses can be introduced into the target population asymptomatically, enabling a biological weapon attack to be mounted covertly. Almost every troubling aspect of COVID-19 is discussed in this very document. And Dr. Asher, do you believe that China has a biological weapons program? And if so, what is the percentage of the chance that this was designed, this virus was designed as a biological weapon? Well, China does have a biological weapons uh, program. Uh, it does involve synthetic biology and gain-of-function technologies, which is why it was particularly distressing to learn that we were providing material aid uh, through uh, financial assistance, uh, scientific knowledge transfer, as well as uh, just complicity to the Chinese uh, communist uh, effort that was centered around the People's Liberation of Army. Uh, and this, this is not really a secret. The Chinese have been talking about this for years. Let me also re just mention real quick in passing, the people who built the BSL-4 lab, the most dangerous lab in Asia, one of the most dangerous labs in the world for enabling this research were the French. The French were kicked out. They had been starting to feel the pressure from the Chinese in 2015, just as they started to build this lab. Um, the French government in 2017 was fully evicted, humiliated actually. Their prime minister had gone there for a ribbon cutting ceremony. I don't think Xi Jinping was there, but his vice premier was. And then like weeks later, they were sent away. Now they came out and warned people. I was astonished because I was in the biotech sector at the time. I heard all about this. I mean, we were like, well, we better not be working with China anymore because the Chinese are embarked on something that looks like WMD. Why didn't everyone at the State Department know this? And it, what it really came down to is uh, our, our nonproliferation bureaucracy, which is separate from the arms control bureaucracy, for whatever reason, just didn't see the, the importance of synthetic biology and advanced gain-of-function applications in biology as a warfare threat. Well, now we know it's a warfare threat. Was this a weapon? Probably not. It was a weapons-related vector being developed, okay? A weapon doesn't—the reason I don't think it was a weapon deliberately deployed, at least, was I just found the Chinese were confused when this originally happened, and they were asking us, what's going on in Wuhan? And then I thought to myself, if they really understood this, why wouldn't they have done what Professor Mueller would say um, and has said? They would have released it at Fort Detrick in Maryland, just outside the gates, and then they could have blamed the United States. I think this was a laboratory disaster, a biological meltdown, but then they covered it up. And when they covered it up and didn't tell uh, Admiral Garrar and others, it, it, it essentially proliferated it as a type of weaponized vector. Any virus that gets out can effectively become a weapon, which leads me to a, a final thing. You know, the Chinese, again, had told us in 2011 that this was gonna happen. They told us that they were gonna pursue, in, in effect, these types of capabilities because they said that's the future of warfare. Well, today we at state and other you know, government agencies, including commerce, know this, but we have no export controls on gain of function technologies from the United States, even into communist China. Now, I'm not for over-regulation of my own business area, biotechnology, which you know, it can save the world, but it also can end the world. So I encourage you to think, why don't we have just basic level export controls like we do in so many other technologies for biotechnology, especially since we are at the epicenter of the biotech revolution in the world today, and the Chinese are desperate to get a hold of our technology. Thank you.
I think that's an excellent point. Uh, do you think this was an intelligence failure, or do you think this was, you know, decision makers had the information and ignored it? Well, it was an intelligence failure because if we didn't use the intelligence, sir, between our ears, to understand that the French government had been kicked out, our ally. I mean, the French worked very closely with the National Institutes of Health. I don't understand how the National Institutes of Health didn't know that the French had been evicted from this, the number one Chinese cooperative program in the world. Um, that was apparent. But then there are things I will mention in passing. Some of the information in the declassified fact sheet that Secretary Pompeo presented on January 15th, right here, um, was dated November, December of 2019. It was all declassified, including the dates of information. We won't so say what was classified and what wasn't unclassified. There was a mix, but most of it was very sensitive information. But how did it take a year to get to our desk at the State Department? Maybe it got to your desk the same time uh, it got to us, to your intelligence briefers. I was sort of shocked. It sort of reminded me have been a senior official at state before and after 9-11. I said, you know, we learned in ex post facto, 2020 hindsight, that we knew somehow in our sum system that this might happen. Well, part of it is just policymakers themselves. We didn't emphasize the threat of biotechnology. So, like, I don't blame our intelligence community. I don't want to hold them to the fire unduly. We didn't tell them this could happen and we should put this at like toward the top of the WMD priorities, not toward the bottom. Because Dr. Mueller, one of the great experts on nuclear war in the world, will tell you that it's probably a lot more probable that we'll have a bio war. It's a lot cheaper. And Dr. Quay has even done some estimates on what a bio war would cost versus a nuclear war. It's pretty cheap, pretty effective. And I'm more worried now, not just about China, but about every terrorist crackpot that I've dealt with in the world over the last 30 years coming out of the shadows and trying to get a hold of U.S. technology to program these things on bioreactors on a desktop. So, so if, I'm, if I may to just, um, I spent much of my career in biological warfare defense, both at DARPA and at DITRA at the Threat Reduction Advisory Committee. And I want to just emphasize that I agree with everything Dr. Asher said, export controls. But I do want to raise another dirty little secret that really needs to be looked at by Congress and that those export controls should also include Americans' DNA sequences. Um, this is a really vital piece uh, in general. Even the NIH often exports gene sequencing for many of our people to China. Uh, China absolutely keeps databases on what in our genes, what are our susceptibilities, is there a possibility of ethnic weapons. However, China does not allow any sequences of Chinese out of their country. There's a reason for that. So, uh, again, I don't want to steal your thunder, Dr. Asher, but uh, it's not just technology, but it's information, and genetic information is really critical. And the last thing, uh, you, Dr. Green, just sorry to interrupt, but the, the one area you didn't mention, which is the scariest, not that you didn't read it, I mean, it's just, it's so terrifying, I can't even process it. The, in the Chinese Declaration of 2011, they talked about, to the Biological Weapons Convention, they talked about systems biology further revealing population-specific genetic markers that can yield an improvement in levels of human health, but also can create the potential for biological weapons based on genetic differences between races. Once hostile elements grasp a different difference between different ethnic groups harbor intrinsically different genetic susceptibilities, particular pathogens, they can put that knowledge into practice and create genetic weapons targeted at a racial group with a particular susceptibility. I am certainly not a racist, but, and I've spent my life in Asia. But to hear the Chinese communists talk about ethno-targeting to the Biological Weapons Convention is pretty scary. 
Thank you. Um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, Dr. Garar, uh, you mentioned in some of your testimony earlier, and we've all talked about this, conflicts of interest thing. Could you elaborate on the types of conflicts of interest and perhaps give us some specific examples of conflicts of interest that perhaps were violated in the, I don't, I don't want to use the word cover-up by our media, but but the Lancet article and... and so I'm, I'm, let me first say I'm not accusing anyone of anything, um, but I want to be really explicit as a physician, as a scientist, or a person who had NIH grants, who was a professor at a medical school, you know, I did that, I did this routine. Um, uh, people are salaried hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, um, and that is a potential conflict of interest. They want their jobs, they want their money. Uh, millions of dollars in grants, you know, the currency of the realm are NIH grants. Um, you know, when somebody's introduced, they had 30 years of continuous NIH funding. This is not only financially lucrative, but it's also a prestige factor. Um, people who have inventions could make tens of millions of dollars based on those inventions when they sell those to industry. But again, I do believe, and I saw it on a daily basis, and some of these esteemed colleagues have said, um, you know, there was, you, you know, President Trump was a controversial figure. Okay, we were controversial in the Trump administration. But there was such bias against the president that even thinking that you were helping the president, you were, uh, you know, excommunicated from the scientific community. And I think that's a really important factor. And if you, so if I, I want to, I want to yes, just dig in on that a little bit. So uh, I, I'm a physician, and we did in residency, uh, you know, this thing called Journal Club, that was designed to teach us how to see bias in medical studies. We would look at, well, were the researchers funded by the drug they're investigating? So uh, breaking it down to the simplest level, was there selection bias in the population ex examined in the study? All these different types of bias in science, right? What I just heard from you is that there is a new bias in our scientific community, and it is Trump. And if you are going to research anything that could you know, prove the president's statements true, then, then that absolutely is rejected out of hand and therefore a form of bias. Is that what I'm hearing? Um, you are hearing that, and I'm going to tell you, and I'm, I am not going to go into specifics, but physicians who were on the task force or who were around the task force were under tremendous pressure from their scientific colleagues to not even show up with the president on stage, advise in the Oval Office, tremendous pressure, and they felt it. Uh, this was real. Um, and again, I, I um, you know, uh, I'm not going to read into her, but I'll just say Dr. Burke said she knew her career was over the moment she came to the task force because she would be uh, prejudicially sought yeah, Excommunicated from the scientific community because she may have supported some thesis that but scientifically was true, and we all know to be true, but Trump supported. What's well, not even the thesis. It's just being on the same place with the president. Uh, I think oh, he you, would you can't it. even be in the same room, huh? Right, and and, and huh? That's that's true. And people true. died because of the false information that has been put out, right? I mean, we we know for a fact. I mean, Columbia University, not a bastion of conservatism. Columbia University said sixty percent of the people who died could have been saved had China just said human to human transmission three weeks sooner. And this group of people, the media and the Dorseys and the uh, Zuckerbergs of the world who refused, called it a 
conspiracy theory. Oh, it's a conspiracy theory. People died. That blood is on the hands of the social media giants and the media and the people who refused and just completely supported whatever China and the World Health Organization said. You have scientists, competent scientists, saying differently and being ostracized. Shame on you. Um, Mr. Chairman, I'm probably way over my time. I yield. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, very good question. Uh, Representative Melia Tucker. Thank you. you know, I, I, as a member of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee as well, I was just really curious about talking about the responsibility of all global leaders to uh, determine the origins and work together in cooperation to prevent a, a future pandemic. I would love to ask uh, D David Asher uh, some of his thoughts on, uh, you know, working at the, uh, the the for the Secretary of State. What were some of the, some of the the things that you had been working on with our partners on the global level, and where can we uh, build upon that to ensure that? Well, number one, there's accountability, but I do feel that there's been a, a little bit of hesitancy from our. Uh, global partners and in, in holding China accountable and really demanding answers to the origins. So I'd love to hear from your perspective of the work that you did in that regard. Congressman Mali Takis, thanks very much for that important question. Um, the, uh, the lack of cooperation among even our Five Eye partners in the intelligence world was <laughs> a bit surprising. Uh, but, you know, the information can be had. I mean, talk to the French. They know a tremendous amount. They trained the people in Wuhan, actually. So even though they got kicked out, they're still in touch. Uh, they have one of the best intelligence services on the face of the earth, the DGSE. Uh, DGSE has come out publicly, and it, which is unusual for them. They're very secretive, makes the CIA spokesperson look loquacious. Uh, but they've come out and said that you know they were very concerned starting 2015 that this was going to have a WMD relationship and that France was indirectly and inherently un not intentionally at all, but because of the scientific cooperation that was sincere. I have no doubt that the Pasteur Institute in France sincerely wanted to help combat uh, reemergence of SARS. Uh, and the French scientific establishment, just like ours, was, you know, wanted to be helpful. And I know that the French foreign ministry, like the Department of State bureaucracy, was facilitating this cooperation. But we should have been second-guessing ourselves. We should have had some sort of uh, a more advanced function in policy related to proliferation. Uh, I found an awful lot of the non-proliferation bureaucracy, the sort of permanent bureaucracy, cleared on things that, in, a, in hindsight, were proliferating giving dual-use technology to the Wuhan Institute, knowing that for years there had been suspicions of its involvement with the Chinese People's Liberation Army, which now the Washington Post just put out last week, is in their actual instruction manual for employees, I believe, that it talks about secret programs and the need to manage uh, loyalty to the party above anything else, and sort of like it's on their website. Okay, so sort of the risk management thing here, but the cooperation now does need, we need a coalition of the willing among our allies. I happen to have the, the, my, my, you know, one experience uh, under the Democrats, so I came back as a nonpartisan person, as a professional, to help put together the coalition against the Islamic State, which, you know, at first was highly politically charged. No one wanted to do it. We weren't gonna go out and blast them. I said, we have to attack their economic uh, underbelly. Uh, General Allen, General McFarland, and I helped put the plan together. And guess what? We took them out. That brought together all sorts of states that people never thought would cooperate. It brought together our partners from NATO. It brought together the first Arab coalition. There are people 
that will work with us. The Singaporeans, they've got major interests in Wuhan. Uh, the, uh, the French, the, you know, our own scientists have so many of the clues. So I'm confident that we can get to the bottom of this issue. I, I, I concur with my colleagues that the idea that we'll never know is silly. We're going to know. We could learn an awful lot. We don't even have awards at the State Department. We don't even have a rewards for justice program. Like I'd give 10, 15 million dollars like we did with Al-Qaeda after 9-11 to anyone from the Wuhan Institute that wants to defect who actually has senior level knowledge. I put there, I mean, I've done some things in the Intelligence Committee with defections. We know how to handle it. We'll get to the bottom of this. The problem is when we do, including with our partners, we're gonna be scared out of our minds about what it entails. That's what I fear. The fear itself could be the problem. Is, is that why you believe that the president and you know, Nancy Pelosi, Dr. Fauci, that they just refuse to truly investigate this to allow the select subcommittee to hold hearings? I mean, what's going on with, I mean, not to put you in a... Well, I'm going to give the president a bit of, I used to sometimes sit on the Amtrak with a guy, he was always fine to me, but you know what, I mean, you know, the world changes when you get in the, into that world he's in, but he hasn't, he's done the right thing and enabling the intelligence community to try to actually work with the national laboratories to get to the bottom of this. Um, we are, in fact, actually seeing some of the Democrats, uh, but not with you in the room, um, you know, some of them are asking questions and asking for our expertise. So as much as, you know, this is a politically charged environment, you know, uh, on the Senate side, at least, I'm going over to, we're all going over to do a briefing on foreign relations uh, that at least seem mentioned in the staff level, uh, bipartisan. So, you know, I have hope as a personal, you know, yeah. as an independent American citizen. However, the reality is, we're going to have to be very organized. That's why the idea that uh, Representative Gallagher and, and put forward about this uh, commission, a 9-11-like commission, this is, you know, 9-11 was terrible. It's the 20th anniversary. We can't forget. I spent so many years in the war on terror fighting it, um, and we're still fighting it, despite what people say. But the, the, this war, to tr we need to do something to stop the war of the future in, in synthetic biology and gain-of-function technology because it's going to kill, it could kill every one of us. Uh, there's much worse types of diseases that could be manufactured. Something called a prion that our doctor can tell you about. It causes Alzheimer's and Lee body dementia. There's no way to stop it. So some terrorists, we've seen Al-Qaeda research this. So we, you know, there's so many things that could get worse and that have been public. I, I think we just got to get organized and you can help. And I hope that there'll be a new comedy in the wake of this, uh, you know, between both parties and you can get to work with the... Uh, I have one more question. I know uh, Dr. Quay, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I just, I, have, I haven't talked about the thing that keeps me up at night the most. So we've talked a lot about China and what its capabilities are and what BSI-4 labs are and BSI-3 and that sort of thing. And they're very expensive and they're complicated and there's a lot of equipment and fancy things. But there was a paper in February of 2020, 30 scientists from Switzerland, uh, they're probably all under 30 in their tennis shoes, and uh, using kitchen equipment, not BLSA 2, 3, or 4, kitchen equipment, um, they were able to order the pieces of SARS-CoV-2 from a, from a supply company, eight different pieces, and in baker's yeast, you know, the stuff you use in your kitchen to make French dough bread on, on Saturdays, they were able to uh, recover, they were able to put these eight pieces together inside the, the sourdough yeast and get it to express SARS-CoV-2. So that scares you a little bit, and then you look at how many times that has been downloaded, and that paper has been downloaded 118,000 times. And I would like someone to look to see if anyone, any terrorists watch lists are on that download list. Appreciate you sharing that. Uh, that's certainly scary. 
Um, one last question, just because I want to focus more on the also the, the 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 World Health Organization. If 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 you know, I am concerned about you know re-entry into the World Health Organization without using leverage to be able to try to get some their cooperation in a more formal investigation. Uh, I feel that some of the most outrageous actions taken by the WHO and the CCP are that the CCP was given full veto power over inclusion of American scientists. The CCP vetoed the three Americans put forward by HHS. Um, the, the only American accepted was uh, the CEO of EcoHealth. Um, which was interesting since they've historically funded the Wuhan Institute. The CCP designed the mission's itinerary and refused access to Chinese scientists and raw data. Uh, and at the behest of the CCP, the WHO altered their mission to include far-fetched origin claims um, like shipped frozen food. The CCP was given full power to edit and alter the final report. What should we be doing uh, as, a, as a nation um, with regards to holding WHO accountable, uh, being that we are the largest funder of WHO and we deserve to be, you know, treated with respect, not not played for fools. Uh, and and what, how, what should we be doing with our partners that you made, are... In, you made very important comments, and, and, and I'm not really sure how much of this came out, and I do want to get it on the record. Um, our Ambassador Bremberg had a personal conversation and meeting with Director General Tedros, as well as Mike Ryan, and they suggested, they not, didn't suggest, they told Ambassador Bremberg that we should submit uh, names for the WHO Investigation Committee. That got relayed back to me through our Office of Global Affairs. We picked three scientists. They were not political. They were career, one from the FDA, one from the CDC, one from the NIH, impeccable credentials. We didn't do a political bi biopsy on them, had no idea what they were from, uh, recommended them to the WHO um, through all the official channels and crickets. Not one word back about the recommendations and they picked Dr. Daszak. Um, and I wanted to get that particularly on the record because we went out of our way to pick people who could not be argued to be political or have a bone to pick in any way just to try to get the truth. Point number two. Um, the president, whether we would have withdrawn from the WHO or not eventually, I don't know, but you don't give up all your chips while you're getting trying to get the WHO sure. to change. And again, I would refer you, and happy to put in the record, the roadmap for change that came from, uh, delivered by me to the WHO executive board, delivered by Ambassador Bremberg to Tedros, that was brought together by HHS, the NSC, Department of State. Now, it will never be a perfect organization because it's beholden to its members and it has to have a member agreement to go do things. But there are things to strengthen it. It's outlined by the Trump administration. It was almost exactly uh, mimicked by France and Germany. They didn't sign on to our paper because they didn't want to sign on to the US at the time, but it had almost the exact same language. This is a good place to start. Sounds like uh, Dr. Dasik is somebody who should come before our select subcommittee uh, in the near future. And we hope that the majority will bring them in. Thank you. All right, thank you, Ms. Nelitakis. Uh, now let's go to Dr. Miller-Meeks. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, first of all, let me again thank uh, Ranking Member uh, Scalise and uh, Comers for uh, putting this select subcommittee together. Um, your testimony is critically important, and um, it is a shame that our colleagues on the other side of the aisle are not here. This is not a partisan issue. This is, this is not an American issue. This is a world issue. 
it is of critical importance and your courage to be able to testify today and bring forward the information you're bringing forward. Um, I am uh, extremely grateful for that. And as both a physician and a director of public health, I can tell you, Dr. Grar, that the things that you're talking about as conflicts of interest, even as educated as we are, we're still susceptible to peer pressure. We're susceptible to the desire to be published, uh, to be lauded by our peers, to present uh, at confer conferences, and all of these things um, are a type of uh, a pressure and conflict of interest, as you said. Even at universities where I've been on faculty, we were at the point where we could no longer accept a pin from a drug company because it would be a conflict of interest in prescribing a medication. And I can say I've never prescribed a medication because I got a pin. Um, so what you're talking about is extraordinarily sobering. And it's not just that 600,000 Americans have died of COVID-19. We forget, or we haven't mentioned, the millions worldwide. I asked Dr. Walensky of the CDC in April when she testified before our committee, how many excess deaths were there in 2020? 500,000 excess deaths. Those are from cardiovascular events, Dr. Quay, uh, cancer that was not detected, people who did not go into the emergency room, cancer that was not treated, diabetes that wasn't treated, drug overdoses and suicide. There was an article last year, that Sam, in San Francisco alone last year, there were more deaths from drug overdose, far exceeding the deaths from COVID. The number of deaths from youth suicide, which is a tragedy in this nation because of our response to COVID-19 and the pandemic, we will never recover. Even the World Health Organization has talked about childhood poverty, which is much greater than 15% higher, and it will be decades until we recover the grounds that have been lost. So when we're talking about holding the Chinese Communist Party accountable, or the pressure there is among scientists to be able to convey information simply because they didn't like who may have espoused that information, those are issues that we have to address and we have to address as a nation. So thank you for that. And I know that you all actually had information you wanted to convey and were not, so I may just leave my time for information, but I did want to ask uh, uh, just two brief questions. One, Dr. Garrar, if we had known about the magnitude of the virus sooner, do you think our response would have been different? Yes, I do. Um, uh, you know, the CDC has had its ups and downs during the response. But the one thing that the CDC does better than anyone in the world is get on the ground, investigate transmission, and let us know about the virus. And if we could have known about asymptomatic transmission, you know, two months beforehand, it could have potentially saved hundreds of thousands of lives. So, um, you know, I, I do believe, and I, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning still thinking about these questions that, um, you know, when you, get, when you get to the ultimate source of death, as the CNN would say in the autopsy, it was a lack of Chinese transparency early on. If we could have had that, sure, people would have died. We would have still had it throughout. But I, I think we could have had interventions much more timely because we would have known so much about the virus. That's my opinion. That's not science per se, and I will defer to that. But that is my opinion, that we would have done something differently in the CDC were the exact people we needed on the ground in China to make it happen. Well, I, I would say the same thing about treatment modalities that we were not able to discuss as physicians because we were censored or suppressed. Um, so, uh, and this is for any one of you. Um, are you aware and how many variants are there of SARS or MERS? 
Dr. Quay. Are you speaking of SARS-1 and MERS? Well, the variants, the variants are defined as numbers of infections. So, I mean, it's basically, so with SARS-1, it's, it's very limited. There's, there's only like so, three, I think, and then MERS, there's two. Thank you. So the fact that we have so many variants already of SARS-CoV-2 and so rapidly, does that shift us away from a natural, naturally caused evolutionary uh, disease? Does it shift it more towards... Uh, work in a laboratory or manipulation of a, it could be either a man-made virus or a naturally occurring virus that was manipulated. Yeah, I don't data. believe that event does because what you, what you have is you have you know, under 10,000 uh, human infections with SARS-1 and with MERS, and so that'll generate just by naturally a certain number of variants, and then you've got 200 million over here. Um, I, I want to just comment on something that, that, that he said that I think really needs to be amplified, though, is uh, it was important to know a human-to-human spread early, and that would have been especially useful. But I have to tell you that the, the, the concept of asymptomatic spread, which was very unknown and which I believe may be part of ORF7 modifications that occurred in the virus to make it more uh, asymptomatic, um, is the real, to me, is that, that is the, the, the cornerstone of having saved so many lives, if we'd known about that. Could there have it, been genetic manipulation to make it more uh, transmissible or um, The Wuhan Institute of Virology has published papers in, in between 2015 and 2018, I don't remember the exact year, but they published papers on, on playing around with ORF7, making it, making it, changing it, to see how the interferon response was. And I think they had like three or four different high interferon, low interferon, no interferon. Uh, and this was done in another backbone, but, but they, they did that work. They did suppression of the antigens on the spike protein. They did ORF8 to show who they could kill and who they couldn't um, in other viruses. And so all these pieces are in uh, SARS-CoV-2 as well. And, and given the information that you all have revealed today about um, uh, you know, basic levels, uh, exporting our biotechnology, are you concerned about the president being willing to give up the intellectual property protections for the vaccines? Okay, conflict of interest. 87 patents and seven drugs I've invented. So I like patents. Um, but then on, on just, if I can, beyond that, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think because we're willing to throw around so much money here, there's probably another way to do it without breaking something that was in the Constitution we started with and has worked pretty well. I actually teach a course where patents are the foundation of America's success because one, one family like mine in the 1800s got to make fruit crates for two generations, and then they gave it away. And so the, everything you see around here was patented at one point in time, and it's, a, it's an incredible engine of, uh, of, of commerce. Dr. Mueller, did you want to add something to that? Then, then I would say, uh, obviously, it's important to protect it so that you all can continue to develop patents. Um, I just want to say that, number one, I think patents are critical for innovation. But number two, it's completely naive of this administration to say, we're just going to give a patent away for a sophisticated manufacturing of vaccines that takes years and billions of dollars of expertise. We're going to give it away so somebody else can manufacture it. It's just naive. It, it does not make biological sense. It's a, it's a fantasy world. What needs to happen if you want to do that is exactly what we did on the administration. Have an option to buy two billion vaccines, have them manufactured by the companies that have patented them, and then give them to the world. You don't give this technology to other countries. Number one, it violates our patent and innovation, but number two, they can't do it. 
because it, you know you're going to have contaminated vaccines, bad vaccines, and then you run the entire well, vaccine out. In, in addition to which, the, these both Russia and China have been known to spread disinformation about our vaccines, which have been very effective. So thank you for that, and I yield back my time. Thank you for yielding back. And the other point on vaccines is if it were to be given away, these countries don't have the infrastructure today to start manufacturing it. So you've given away what, what's been years of research and billions of dollars of private investment. You will stifle future investment because if, if the next company that maybe is on the verge of curing Alzheimer's or curing a new cancer, uh, if they see that, if it's successful, their billions of dollars can evaporate because the president can just give it away to countries like China. It would have a stifling effect on that innovation, which still can't even be used today because, as you said, Dr. Gerard, you can contract today with those companies and they have the infrastructure to, to make those vials. Those countries, China does not have the infrastructure today and do we even trust that they have the quality standards. But let me ask, uh, do, do you gentlemen have the time to go for some additional questions? All right, now that we've had... Our first round of questions, again, thank you all for coming. I'll start, and going back to what Chairman McCall talked about with the work that he's done on the China Task Force, one of the things they looked into is that uh, as we find out further back uh, that uh, this started, there were reports that three of the people who worked in the Wuhan lab came out with COVID-19 symptoms. At the time, they didn't know what it was, but they had flu-like symptoms that today would fit with COVID-19. First of all, have any of you gotten any information on on testing that may have been done on those three workers at the Wuhan lab to determine, we can go back and do blood samples and see if they had the antibodies to determine if it was COVID-19 back probably in September of 2019, as opposed to even December or early 2020. Do any of y'all know uh, what happened to those lab workers who reports say had the first potential cases? Dr. Quay. Uh, well, there's, there were a couple major areas of information records that the WHO uh, team wanted to look at. They actually wanted to do a few things in a possible way, and, and those were patient records. And so no patient records of early cases of COVID were given or allowed to be looked at by the, uh, the WHO committee. They said, you know, it's, it's privacy, they're, you know, patients, and, and we, we respect our privacy laws and things. So, so there isn't information there. I have, I have published a paper that examined a very complicated process of, of the 590 employees of the W uh, Women Institute of Virology, which basically concludes that there is no statistical way that they didn't have positive cases there. They, you know, China says they didn't, the WHO says they didn't, and with a 4% uh, pr uh, prevalence in Wuhan in general, they should have had them in the in the Wuhan Institute just by getting it, you know, from the 7-Eleven down the street. So saying they didn't have any is a false statement. So having led the declassification of that information uh, with uh, the support, of course, of DNI Radcliffe and Sir Trey Pompeo, not myself, but I, you know, put the fact sheet together with uh, colleagues in the IC and uh, and elsewhere, and um, you know, very high confidence. We put it in the declassified information that there were illnesses inside the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a cluster before anywhere else we knew of in the world. What time frame did you? Uh, you know, I'm going to say what I know from another government that had people in there. Okay, because that way I'm not giving any U.S. you know information out. This is not uh, information was received by the State Department. I've heard it after I left the State Department. But I'm pretty convinced they know what was going on because they were working with the Wuhan Institute. 
Uh, it was mid-November, early to mid-November. Uh, there were workers falling sick, either with influenza uh, uh, or something that would more or less resembled COVID. Uh, now, what the exact biology of this was, well, we, we don't know. We may never know. Um, but I do believe, having led this effort to, to sort of get to the bottom of this can of worms with the, in the intelligence community, there's a lot of data that's in our <coughs> possession. There's a lot of data, and Admiral Garrar can talk about it, at NIH and its databases. That's what this, these scientists out at the Hutch Institute at University of Washington recently discovered, that even, on, you know, they were, that the, even in March of last year, there were Chinese calling up or sending emails to NIH saying, please take down the blast sequences we've run in your, in, on your data system for genetic analysis because we just want them taken down. Well, of course, those were probative elements in showing that the Chinese were sicker earlier than they ever admitted. And, uh, you know, may have even had evidence in some of those sequences that this was uh, spreading in a way that would have... It would be important to get that information. Of course. Let me ask we all of you... We yes, yes or no question. Uh, Senate Bill 18, 1348, which I, I referenced yeah, earlier, this is the cool. bill that requires the Director of National Intelligence to declassify information relating to the origin of COVID. Again, this bill passed the United States Senate unanimously, still has not come up in the House. Do you think it would be helpful for the world to know if we were able to declassify that information? Would you support getting this information well, I mean, I know a lot of the information it is classified, and I'd say your ears will bleed, you know, when you, when you, know, you're, when you, when you think of it. Your so eyes you would support cry. declassifying like, this information? It's pretty, pretty amazing things, but there is also a lot of information that was never classified. You know, the top sequence companies... And I know we, I want to run yeah, through and get go, the rest. Uh, Dr. Muller, would it be helpful to get that information declassified? You're asking me? Uh, I believe it would be very important. Uh, Dr. Quay? For, not, not for determining whether this was a lab leak, because I think the scientific evidence for that is compelling, but for understanding more of the details of what the program was going on. Yes, very important. Dr. Quay? Yeah, I believe it would be very valuable for that. Uh, and I just, adding other things we were talking about being in the fall, November 12th, 2019, three scientists of Wuhan Intervirology. You know what they do? They file a, a patent in China for a tourniquet to prevent uh, bleeding if you get bit by an animal, uh, for, you know, so you don't get infected by the virus in the animal. November 12th, 2019. Dr. Girard. I think as much as possible, I certainly wouldn't want to jeopardize our sources and, and methods uh, in China because we're going to need those. But as much as possible, that we can uh, that would shed light without jeopardizing um, our sources and methods. Absolutely, 100%. Thank you, and that, that's what this legislation would do. Hopefully, it gets brought up. I'll go back then to the other comment that uh, Chairman McCall made, and you know, we, we had heard about these uh, these military uh, games back in October of 2019, the military world games about. 10,000 athletes from over 100 different countries participated. This was in October 18th to 27th of 2019 in, yes, of all places, Wuhan, China. Many of those athletes reported flu-like symptoms at the time. COVID-19 was not known for, for testing purposes to determine if that was it. Looks like that may have been the case. Uh, have we been able to get information about uh, was that maybe the first super spreader event? And the other thing was, getting back to that earlier question, if we would have known in those early months that this was a lab-made, genetically engineered virus, uh, not 
a bat-to-animal-to-human virus. Uh, if we would have known that at the beginning, when China knew it, could that have saved lives here in America and throughout the world? Dr. Second question uh, first, whether it was laboratory-derived or natural, if we would have had open access the moment it started spreading, we could have saved lives. Secondly, if we knew it was lab-derived, that would be an extra uh, bonus for us to save more lives. And to expedite a vaccine as and well. expedite a vaccine, you know, all of the above. The third part about the, the games, I have no information about it, but I tell you, every CDC detective and everybody at the NIH started to be looking at that. Could That could really reveal information about the origins. I don't think we have anything in those athletes. Maybe the State Department does, but I, I don't. Yeah, Dr. Quay. Well, since they were Olympic-style games, they should have blood samples for drug, drug testing. Uh, and so I pointed, I asked uh, uh, David last fall, if we should we should try to see the, because the sample should be in the, in the, in the refrigerator. We know who would have that. I mean, it was, again, it was oh, put on in, in China. Perhaps. I'm not Wuhan, sure of that. But, but one thing I would like to add, if I had a test tube of this virus in 72 hours in a laboratory, I could tell you how much more virulent it is in SARS-1 or MERS. So um, that would have been very helpful in the fall. Dr. Mueller? No, no further Dr. Asher, any other points on that? We, we were told by the Army that they had reason to be suspicious, but I never actually got any further information other than they yeah, were. And we've been having a hard time getting DOD to give us some of that information now. Yeah. Again, it would be well, helpful to have that, that kind of I would assume they would have it. I hearing. mean, these athletes are highly tested. I mean, anybody who's traveling abroad, we all get, you know, I mean, it is, it, I, I just would be shocked if we don't have it, that data. Uh, I talked to the Veterans Administration, of course, as to the Army, you know, our Army medical system um, and other services. Well, we'll keep pressing for that. Thank you. Next, we'll go back to Mr. Comer. Thank you. Dr. Gua, the WHO is supposed to be an apolitical part of the United Nations at the center of a response to a, a global pandemic. Yet throughout this pandemic, the WHO has shied away from placing any blame whatsoever on China. Uh, can you explain how this false claim hindered the U.S. and the rest of the world from ramping up the proper response to this pandemic in a timely manner? Um, complicated question. You know, saying the U.N. or the WHO is non-political is just, you know, it's fantasy. It's, it's all political, right? Um, there are people who are in the WHO, nation states, who are actively promoting their own agendas, both at the WHO and by subsidizing other smaller countries so that they vote together on a block. This goes everywhere from US uh, ethical values that we're trying to promote throughout the world, including democracy. Um, it also goes to agricultural products where people are trying to use health um, and, and certain practices as an excuse to boycott US and to bring down our agricultural industry. So these places are by nature political. They can be a lot more than that, but they are political and don't be fooled that they aren't. Secondly, I'm not sure how much the WHO statements influenced us, but it certainly influenced the US media and social media. Um, and it's very interesting to me how that's sort of selectively taken. So if the WHO says it couldn't have been a Chinese lab leak, then everybody agrees with that and that's the truth. But if the WHO says children under five should not wear masks and children under 11 only wear masks in certain circumstances, that's not picked up by the media. So uh, that kind of bothers me, and I wanted to point out that dichotomy. Uh, it's very selective. So I think the WHO's stances did influence the U.S. media 
and thus the propaganda machine that's associated. And that it couldn't be spread from human to human. And that it couldn't be spread from human to human. Un unusual, uh, really an unusual statement very early um, uh, to be so definitive about that. And that was really just taking uh, the Chinese word because there was no... There was no information uh, that, that didn't suggest that, and we have all the information that we know that the contrary was true. One last example of the WHO. Uh, in April of 2021, it, the WHO released an entirely one-sided report which uh, uh, tried to examine the, or, the origins of the virus. Outside scientists were given little access uh, and the CCP was given full power to edit and alter the final report. Dr. Grewal, did the U.S. submit any names to be a part of the investigation team? Yes, of the recent one, and, and I'm glad you bring this up um, because I want to emphasize that we submitted, and that went through my office, three non-political career scientists with impeccable credentials who could not be tied to anything that would be offensive to the Chinese aside from they were gonna seek the truth and find it. Those were, we don't know what happened to them, but all we know is they never showed up and only Dr. Dasek uh, was allowed to be on that, on that committee. We heard that, we couldn't believe it because it, it's just, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's pretty unprecedented that you asked, the Director General asked for us to submit names. We submit names, go out of our way to make sure they're completely apolitical, top notch, and they're summarily rejected. So did communist China veto those names? We infer that, but we don't know that. All we know is they had veto power and these three names didn't show up. But, but there were no Americans on this team. Uh, well, Peter Daszak was the, was the- One American. That's correct. And Mr. Daszak, did he have a relationship with the Wuhan lab? Uh, of course, and that and that that's well known. You and talk that about, is a conflict of interest, correct? Uh, it, it's it's a very uh, an ex, it's an extreme conflict of interest. Um, again, I don't know him personally. I don't want to you know imply, but but uh, a priori, there's a major conflict of interest there since he was the, his organization was the vehicle uh, to provide much funding to the Wuhan lab, and of course would have every reason in the world uh, to make it not so that. Uh, work that he funded actually caused a worldwide pandemic. Again, I don't speak for him. I don't know, but that's an appearance of a conflict of interest, which is why we had independent scientists who were not involved, FDA, CDC, NIH. We gave them the pick. Pick your agency you want. And they were impeccable and they were rejected. Based just on these answers today concerning the WHO and their behavior towards the United States and their favoritism towards China, it's very disappointing that President Biden rejoined the WHO as one of his first acts as, as president. Very disappointing without uh, demand, holding them accountable, without asking any questions, without demanding any transparency. Very, very disappointing. Uh, Mr. Ranking Member, I yield back. Thank you. Now let's go back to Mr. Jordan for a second round of questions. Uh, th thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me just, uh, for the record, um, if we can just run down the, the, the line here. Um, each of you believe that the virus started in the lab in Wuhan, China? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Okay. And each of you believe that, uh, by definition, if it starts in the lab, it's, it's, it's man-made, it's engineered? Not, not correct. Okay. Um, it, 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 you know, it's very unlikely this was found in nature. 
Um, but there is a scenario that it could have been collected in nature and then brought to a population center of 11 million, which is kind of crazy, um, and then accidentally leaked. It could also have been, when you say man-made, it could have been naturally evolved, uh, which is what was suggested earlier. So it wasn't like humans putting pieces together, but allow the virus to do the virus. Which do you thing. think is mo more likely, the the humans engineering it or what you just described? I think more likely is this was, uh, and again, we're, this is speculation, but I think more likely it was evolved by passage either in human cells or by, quote, humanized mice to have a very vir virulent pathogen, um, at least the majority of which, okay. and they, you know, but it's still the same thing, okay? Whether I used a genetic tool or whether I evolved it in nature or maybe did a little bit of both, as might have been suggested, it's still a lab. Either one of those product. routes is still considered gain-of-function research. Yes. Well, well, yes. If you're passaging it to gain right. a function, yes. It's or you're engineering lethal. it to gain a function, okay. that's gain of function. I just want to make sure we're all, we're, we're all on the same page. Yeah. Uh, and do... Um, do we get to answers? Yeah. I, I saw head shakes from everyone, yeah. so I'm thinking that on the first part. Yeah. Um, I'd like to distinguish between gain of function, which is where a, a virus is brought in and you could do three kinds of manipulations to it, and something I'll call, I call gain of opportunity where you do what, 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 what the doctor said and, and go out into, into caves and things and you bring them back to a population center and they, they, they've been used to being in a bat fighting with all kinds of viruses and now you, you make a million times as many copies in one dish and, and the person doing that is, is, gets a chance to get infected. So gain of opportunity is a natural virus that is in Wuhan that escapes and then gain of function is, is a virus where you place it. But we right. haven't found this being a natural virus. And, oh, of course not. Of course so. not. I just, it, it's a gain of function without it. Okay. Mr. Muller? Yeah, I would say that uh, that the evidence that this was created by uh, manipulation, by gene splicing, as well as gain of function, uh, is compelling and beyond reasonable doubt. Um, the scientific evidence is very strong, remarkably strong, so stronger you, than anything. You I think have, it's engineered? Then you, engineered. Okay. Yeah. I, I, basically, I, I have been involved in many scientific discoveries, and I have never seen such compelling evidence even for those scientific discoveries okay, that's in, where I was at. In, in physics. All right, Dr. Asher. Just the key thing is to ask your, as you move toward declassification of information um, uh, that's, that needs to be seen, protecting the sources and methods, just ask how much intelligence there is on it coming out of nature. Right. You'll be, be interested in that answer. Yeah, <laughs> I think we know that. Almost rhetorical, right? Um, uh, if we had known it was um, from the lab, and as Dr. Muller points out, engineered, I think you said earlier, Dr. Girard, that that would have helped us save lives. Is that true? Um, I, do, I do believe that. Um, two answers, whether it was engineered or not, if we would have known earlier and there wasn't a cover-up, we could have saved lives. Number two, if we knew it was lab-derived and they were transparent. Again, uh, I'm just hearing about the ORF-7 interferon uh, right here, uh, but that is sort of such a key issue, yeah. which tells you if you, you, know, you get fever and get sick because of your interferon response, and if it was deliberately engineered to block that, not only does that become more infectious, but it means you're going to be asymptomatic. Yeah. That could have been a major, major uh, you know, important finding for us to know early if that were true. Dr. Quay, do you believe if we'd have known early, we'd have saved lives? Yes. If, 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 again, as I said earlier, if I had the, if I had the virus 
and 72 hours, I could have predicted all of the right. transmission and asymptomatic from the from the virus itself. So, Doctor. Dr. Mueller, if we'd have known early that this was from a lab and an engineered virus, do, do you think that, that would have helped to save lives? I, I have no scientific expertise on this. I have my own personal opinion, but I defer to Dr. Quay on such, such issues. Okay. Dr. Asher? The key question, I think, is did we actually know and not process the data? And that's, you know, something we can fix. It's not that it, 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 we can't expect the intel fairy to exist on the policymaker's desk and say, oh, what do you want to know today? But I, certainly at State Department, we would have liked to have known that the Chinese were working on the types of research we later learned they were, and that maybe was in the possession of our government while this was happening. Well, you're, you're, so we might have known, but didn't actually know. You understand, well, it's sort of a weird thing, like with pre-9-11 information. Well, uh, well, well, I'm gonna take it a little broader, but you're sort of getting, the point, getting to the point I wanted to make is, Dr. Fauci was on notice on February 1st. Actually, take that back. He was on notice on January 31st. We got the email where one of the scientists who gets American tax dollars sent him the email and says, the unusual features of the virus make up a really small part of the genome, so one has to look really closely at all the sequences to see that some of the features look engineered. So the top guy on this in our government, the spokesman for the past year and a half, knew clear back on January 31st, 2020, and he also knew this sentence, uh, we all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. So we were on notice back on January 31st, but I think the guy who had this and was on notice downplayed it and actually manufactured an article to keep the American people from knowing this. Well, we were on notice in February of 2017 with the French government that had the most sophisticated technology employed in the world that they, they gave to the Wuhan Institute were kicked out and told the world that they thought this might be the beginning of a WMD program. So just to me, now that didn't meant the President of the United States or anyone really knew about it, but you know, those of us following technology knew about it. But, but, but I, that's, that's different. That is it's a little different, but- No, it it's was, a lot different, because this is a guy in our government well, who gave Dr. the very Fauci grants who's now on about it too, shouldn't he? I mean, it's his counterpart in France. That's, was, they were supposed to have 50 of their researchers from his French counterpart on station, and they were evicted. Dr. Ash, let me ask you a question. Earlier uh, today, you, you talked about, this came from the lab, and the question is, is it a, just a leak from the lab, or is it a bioweapon? And uh, I want you to, to talk to us about that, because I think the assumption for most of us has been it's a leak from the lab, but you're the one who raised the bioweapon. You, you, you brought up that term, and you've been at the State Department. I think you were at the State Department for over 25 years. In and out. In and out, educated at Oxford and Cornell. You know a little something about all this stuff. Tell me your, your, your answer to, was it just a lab leak or was it a bioweapon? They were working on a program related to synthetic biology and gain of function using the serial passage evolutionary or convolutionary technology approaches. Uh, quite publicly, actually, that they had said in their 2011 Declaration of the Biological Weapons Convention and other places, including speeches by their generals, was related to their future of warfare, of hybrid warfare. So, of course, they were working on dual-use research of concerns called DERK. And the DERK, in this case, again, if it gets out of a lab and it's not contained promptly, could result in a weapons-like release. Okay, whether they de deliberately did it is, I have very little sense they did, but were they deliberately working on developing the capability to use advanced pathogenetic capabilities of war uh, in a way that no one's seen ever employed? Yeah, they were. 
course they are. That's what the Chinese have been talking about publicly. So, I mean, there shouldn't be any surprise here. I right. don't know why no one paid attention to it. Finally, if I could, Mr. Chairman, last question is, uh, I think earlier when I was not, uh, had to go vote, um, Dr. Girard, you mentioned something about human DNA and, and, and American going to China. So I, I didn't catch that. Could you, could you fill me in? So um, Dr. Asher talked about export controls for biotechnology, and I, and I know he knows this as well or better than I do, but it's not just technology, but it's information, and our genetic information is actually critical. And I do assess that the Chinese have set up circumstances that they're doing a lot of our gene sequencing of, of Americans that are through normal labs or even through studies at the NIH. And they're doing that for a reason, and that genetic sequences are, are powerful. They know our vulnerabilities. It is the first step in devising a potentially ethnic weapon, um, as was discussed by Dr. Asher. And similarly, I don't know if it's still the case, but I believe it is, you're not gonna see any genetic sequences of Chinese exported out of the country. That was a law. There's a reason for that. And when we talk about export of technology, export of our genetic information may be the most important key that we need to stop. Well, I want to make sure I understand this. So, so American genetic information is going to China, the same China that Dr. Asher talked about is doing bioweapon research with this stuff. And you're saying that combination is of particular concern. Oh, it, it, is a, it is a huge, it is an absolutely huge concern from where I sit. And again, um, uh, I've been out of the formal bioweapons defense, uh, you know, uh, part of the government for, for a period of time. But uh, genetic information uh, uh, is very powerful, right? It, it decides who we are. It tells about our vulnerabilities, um, not only disease states, but potential for genetic weapons. And what I mean by that is there are variations in receptors and other things that vary by populations, and those can potentially be exploited so that a new pathogen would differentially target um, a race. Uh, a European ancestry versus someone else. And we are essentially just giving all that information to China in the context of what I do believe is an unprecedented and What's terrifying. What's the rationale for giving that to China? I mean, well, I, I, I we, think that's a fundamental question we got to ask on all this. Why are we giving all this information to be, China? Because most people in the community are either naive to the threat, they deny the threat, they're oblivious to the threat, or just don't want to think about it. Um, and that's my assessment of many uh, of the people involved in research. It's not that they're evil, it's not they're giving it to them, but they don't just understand what is happening in China and other places, wow. and we're providing this in a naive fashion um, acro across the board. And, and I just wanted to point out that genetic information, and again, I'm, I, I'm gonna, I hope Dr. Dasher would agree with this, but genetic information is one of those things that you know we should be um, keeping as, as a vital national security oh. secret uh, and not providing it to adversary nations who wish to develop weapons uh, even openly in the literature. If I could make a comment on this. I'm, I'm at the mercy oh. of the chair right now, but if, I'll leave it up to Dr. Uh, just, you. Just yeah, because uh, I, know, I know exactly what he's saying, but I, want, I think I want to say it in, a, in a, another way. So if you go on the Internet, I want to do, you know, you can do DNA tests for almost anything on the Internet as a consumer, and you don't even need, you know, a doctor to sign and you, you, you do a scraper, you do a spit. Yeah. 
the specimen will very often go to a laboratory here, but then it, but then it gets shipped to BGI, uh, which is which which uh, Dr. Ash will say bought more alumina sequencing machines than any comp any place in the world, and so they will get, they will do the sequence there and they'll send it back Got to the company. But but guess what? They'll keep a copy, and that's what he's talking about. So every time in America, not not always, but many times, you will do what you think is it's, you know, and you'll go to a U.S. address and then it gets shipped to BGI. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of this hearing. Let me again thank our four witnesses. You are all experts in your field. You've all brought some incredibly riveting testimony, some concerning testimony, just in the sense that uh, more of these questions need to be asked. And, and frankly, uh, we, we should be getting answers from others who were also invited but didn't come forward because there are a lot more questions to be answered about the origins of COVID-19. I think it's been very clear from all of your respected testimony that uh, the origins of COVID-19 came from the lab, whether it was uh, engineered just completely uh, from the mice, uh, was there a source, a host like a bat? Uh, but the bottom line is we need to be asking more of these questions, especially to people who do have these answers. And there are some people who have these answers who chose not to come. Uh, I would urge uh, our counterparts in the majority party to hold a bipartisan hearing where subpoena powers would be involved, where we can compel all witnesses who know information that has not been put on the table to come forward. We're here to find facts. We found out a lot of facts today. I think facts that are very helpful, facts that show that if China was just forthright early off in this process, going back to September, October of 2019, when they knew what was going on in that lab, but lied to the rest of the world, lives could have been saved. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions globally, could have been saved. So let's make sure we get those answers so it never happens again, but also there needs to be accountability as well. Those are things that Congress should be debating. So far, this majority has chosen not to. Let's also continue to call for a expedited hearing on Senate Bill 1348, which would declassify much of that uh, information that the director of intelligence, uh, of national intelligence has on the origins of COVID-19. Again, it passed the Senate unanimously. This is not partisan legislation. Uh, let's get all of these facts out there and those others who have information and have not yet come forward. Now is the time to come forward. The American people deserve to know uh, wherever the facts lead. And if, if the facts don't lead in a place that you're comfortable with, the facts are going to come out anyway. It's better for everybody who has information to bring it forward so that we can at least ask these questions, get the information, and learn from what happened. Uh, it's been very, very helpful uh, that we got this information out. I think you've all done an incredible service uh, in having this, uh, having this broadcast. I think we'll open up and shine a light even brighter on something that we still need to dig and get more answers for. So with that, thank my colleagues for participating. 